Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This is S4A live stream number 100 being recorded on May 31st, 2023. So it's been a few weeks since I did a live stream and initially the reason for that was um, I had planned kind of in like an extravaganza for the stream. I had a bunch of sort of large projects that I wanted to do. And then when I took the time to actually start doing it, I guess you could say I reconnected with the part of me that, well, the part of this channel before I started live streaming, which I'm not primarily a streamer. Um, I started doing streaming last February 2022, basically exploring Twitch, which we're at twitch.tv slash socialismsforA, by the way. I uh, started exploring Twitch as a possible backup for YouTube where we've uploaded over 700 videos now. And I was just looking for other places to upload them because we have most of the stuff, over 400 things over on SoundCloud. Um, I think that the actual backup is going to be the Spotify, which unfortunately I don't have a short URL for yet, but I'll get one and then I'll put it on the image that's on the screen um, so that people can go follow on Spotify. Um, I also haven't moved all the videos over yet, but it seems like Spotify is the better backup. Um, so even though I'm not going to be using Twitch to upload clips to, I did start live streaming like once or twice a week, most weeks for the past year. Um, and this became a thing that people kind of liked, so I kept doing it. That said, um, I am not a quote streamer per se. We were doing the channel for two years before I did a single live stream. Um, part of that was just because I want to know what the hell I was talking about. doesn't seem to stop a lot of people from streaming, but it did stop me. I want to know kind of what the hell I was talking about before we, you know, started streaming and people started asking questions and expecting some kind of informed response from me. Um, but yeah, there's this whole sort of drama zone on Twitch of, you know, liberal, radlib, debate bro streamers that... Just, um, you know, it's like watching a police interrogation, just trying to catch each other in little um, bait phrases. And it's just kind of sad and no one benefits from it. And I've commented on this before, but that's not a world I'm trying to join. The point of these live streams is just, you know, uh, we do educational stuff on the channel, audiobooks, and trying to tie in the lessons of history and Marxism to solving political problems of today, not just being a sort of, you know, historical appreciation society um, or some kind of cosplaying or, you know, uh, again, just online drama zone where people play sort of team sports with their favorite streamer. I have never, never, never wanted to um, join that useless, worthless world of trolls and debate bros. Um, there's really nothing to be gained or learned from that. Um, it's just a big time waster, and you should be out in the real world organizing instead. So, um, you know, that said, these streams became kind of a way for me to put together all of the current event stuff that I was doing somewhat separately um, in offline recorded content. Um, unfortunately, you know, in the last few months especially, I've had kind of a hard time balancing the streams with everything else because they did pick up momentum. But I found that I was spending like an inordinate amount of time per week 
prepping for the streams, doing the streams, managing the streams, promoting the streams, etc., etc. And um, I did feel like we were doing some good work, and we were getting into some really interesting areas, but it was kind of also like taking over my life, and I just don't have that much of my life to spend on it right now. So, um, you know, I've talked in the past about maybe slowing down with the streams, but then didn't do it. I really think uh, I have to cut back to like once or twice a month. So I was thinking about this to the point of even this might be the last numbered S4A live stream, and then we might split up it to more topical streams. In other words, ending the general purpose live streams. I've kind of yet to decide on that, but the point is I stepped back to start researching. I knew I wasn't gonna be able to do um, all of the prep work for what I had wanted to do in Livestream 100 um, in one week. So I announced, you know, I won't be streaming the following week. But then as I got into that, I started realizing like, hey, taking a huge break from streaming is actually exactly what I need. Now, part of it might just be the time of year um, you know, it's May, I like spring, it's a nice month where it's not disgustingly hot yet, um, but it's also, you know, well into spring, um, the plants are back, and it's a nice month. I know last year I took like almost a two-week break, so it might be the time of year, and it might be, I don't know, something else, but I do feel like I need to shift back more to offline recorded content. That's not to say I'll never stream again. I would like to do at least once a month to um, just stay current with people, to field questions, kind of like in office hours. I do also think, you know, a lot of people send in, whether it's patrons or just other contacts, people send in current event stories and this and that, and the streams are kind of a good way to do it. Um, I may start doing like one current event stream and one uh, sort of open, you know, office hour stream a month. I don't know, but what I do uh, know is I was streaming too much, and I really uh, found I liked not streaming, hence the long break. That's not to say that we didn't upload any content to the channel, because we did some really interesting audiobooks, I think, and in fact, I recorded three more that will be published today and tomorrow. Uh, they were all by Lenin. Two of them were on religion. A lot of communists seem to um, have a hard time with the topic of religion, and we want to really try to clarify that. Um, to be fair, I think most people do get it right, but there's a sizable, you know, maybe a quarter of people every time religion comes up um, in the context of communism uh, on social media, you see about a quarter of people getting really up in arms about it. And yeah, so this seems to be a subject that needs clarification and um, have over an hour of content. Well, not all of it is about religion, but there's a good like 50 minutes, I think, of content on religion that will be uploaded in the form of Lenin audiobooks with commentary by me. Um, anyway, so yeah, uh, the beat goes on. We'll continue to upload things to the channel, but I may be shifting to more um, offline recorded content. Doing the streams is fun, and having the chat here, which, who's with me right now, is 55 people over at twitch.tv slash socialismsforA. I love chatting with you and this and that, but it does kind of take over my life if I don't put really firm boundaries on it, and that was definitely happening. So, um, yeah, all right, I guess with that, 
let's say hi to the chat. I do have a couple of things uh, prepped for today, not the extravaganza that I originally um, thought, but some things that people sent in about pandemic organizing and intra-organizational criticism and also a story about DSA and the Democratic Party. So yeah, let's uh, let's see what's going on over in the chat here. Thanks to the mods, uh, first of all, who hopefully you saw um, that I was streaming today. I was trying to advertise it in advance, but I appreciate you being here. And keeping the chat straightforward as always, um, that's important work. So what else? Break down the idea behind dual power really quickly. You want to ask me a real question? You know, when people, I've said this before and then I got lax on it, but we got to bring it up again. Phrasing things like thoughts on X, thoughts on Y, it's just, you want to ask a real question maybe with some context in there and, you know, or would that take a while? Yeah, I mean, can you ask something more specific? Um, you just want like a Wikipedia art, you know, go to Wikipedia. You want to understand dual power. Give me a, something more specific to work with there. So somebody had asked, just wanted to ask if you know of any good British Communist parties, because they all seem really terrible. I mean, this is kind of a common thing. My uh, There was Red Fightback, which seemed pretty good. Um, however, it disintegrated a number of months ago, and we read an article about its destruction uh, yeah, a couple months ago, somewhere in live streams number 80 through 99, somewhere in there. Uh, if you want to learn about Red Fightback's destruction, it seemed like one of the better things going on. But yeah, they do seem really terrible. There's uh, CPGBML and OMFUG, which is openly reactionary and terrible and works with Caleb Maupin. So uh, there's that. And then there's the um, CPB, which I think is Trotskyist, Communist Party of Britain. Also, I mean, they call it Turf Island for a reason. Um, can't seem to not be transphobic. If I was reading the social media stuff correctly that was uh, going on a couple months ago, I don't know. Um, you know, my standing recommendation, which is for the moment on the About tab at the YouTube channel, is... I am a U.S. American studying Marxism. I'm not a party. I'm not an organization. Um, if you're looking to get involved in something, which you should, uh, there really aren't, um, you know, I mean, there's there's Marxist parties or at least Mar parties that call themselves Marxist around. You can find them, I'm sure, without my help. Um, the thing that I've seen that I'm most impressed with that I haven't seen anything bad from and, again, am actively impressed with which is international, and um, they have a social media thing and a website, <clears throat> as well as um, study groups and things, is Politsturm, P-O-L-I-T-S-T-U-R-M. You might consider that. Uh, otherwise, I mean, no, I think that this is a big problem. There's a lot of uh, really shit parties around. I'm not endorsing any right now. Like I said, Politsturm is... The one I've seen nothing bad from and have been actively impressed with a lot of their material. I'm also in contact with people in Politsturm who um, I think are reasonable people with good positions. Um, 
you know, are actual Marxists, as I understand that term. They're active scholars and analysts of what's going on in the world. So, you know, that's that's what I've seen. That's um, you know, even even approaching something good. Some people also point to the ACB group, American Council of Bolsheviks, which recently split off from the PCUSA, which split off from CPUSA. But um, they're very, very small. I mean, last I heard, they were like one or two dozen people. So it is quite small. Um, but I'm in contact with at least one person, I think, from that. Seems okay so far, but I really haven't seen much, and it is very small. Beyond that, you know, get to know your local broader left. Not that the broad left is the ticket um, to liberation, but... I do think that if we want to improve the left such as it is, there needs to be kind of a dialogue with it. Um, so getting involved in something, you know, labor union support, tenant union support, ballot initiative support, you know, there are a variety of things going on that you can get involved with. You can network with people. They might know of other things going on that you wouldn't have found out about easily otherwise. So, you know, um, get to know your local left, let them get to know you, then if something does start popping off later, you know, some massive protest startup, um, you'll also have, you know, local contacts of people who may know um, some of the things that are being organized. I think that's generally good advice. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned the sort of the cosplayers and people for whom this really is some sort of big LARP or role-playing. Um, a general note, until you get a strong labor movement, you will not get a strong socialist movement in a country that is 90 plus percent proletarian, such as the United States. You need an organized workers movement in order to build a socialist movement. It's a prerequisite. And right now the labor movement is at, I mean, it's starting to trend back upward a little bit in terms of membership and militancy, but it's really coming out of a um, half century low low point. So until we get a um, serious labor movement, to some extent, all this is hypothetical because, you know, if the masses are not out there, the proletarian in the United States masses are not um, organizing in their class organizations such as labor unions, uh, you know, you, you just can't have a socialist revolution without those kinds of, uh, you know, precursors to organization. Anyway. So all these people sort of, you know, doing their media grifts and like pounding the desk about like, our network is going to do this and that. No, you're not. You're a bunch of fucking LARPing grifters. And yeah, just try not to take streamers and media personalities too seriously. You know, it's like the revolution is not going to come from fucking streamers. It's really, really not. Yeah, <laughs> UK communists, either turf or trot. Blech. British communist here. I'm currently involved with more local Marxist organizing in Wales because, yeah, as for national parties, there's nothing good, either trots or turfs. Turfs being trans-exclusionary radical feminists, for people who are not familiar with the term. Basically transphobe, but a particular type of transphobe that... Um, sort of hides behind radical feminist uh, ideology. 
it's all about like who's a real woman and all this kind of stuff so anyway I'm currently in Mexico and trying to get back to helping out the orgs I formed part of before they're all multi-tendency yeah, I think um, to get any work done at this point you probably have to be part of multi-tendency things as the movement grows you know different tendencies or um, whatever you want to call it can sort of jockey for position and influence but you know anybody who has done any real work in the US left knows trying to piece something together out of strictly Marxist is extraordinarily difficult just as far as numbers go Rad libs give the worst possible takes whenever possible. Yeah, they're glorified Democrats. That's really what they are. Debate bro streams and those terrible X group versus Y group videos are atrocious. Again, it's a sort of, you know, um, just, uh, you know, streaming blood sport. It, it's really stupid. I would be completely done with streams if it wasn't for this channel. This stream also reinforces my doneness with the other streams. Yeah, fuck them. Fuck them. They're not, they're not, uh, I mean, it's a bunch of fucking clowns, which I think is why people watch it. People like clowns, you know, it's entertaining, but, uh, mistaking clowns for politics is a, a big mistake. Yeah. I don't watch any other leftist streamers too. The one exception, I sometimes watch Luna Oi. I think that's about the only exception. She does some interesting I think her channel is very creative and she does a lot of interesting she has a lot of interesting ideas in her videos as far as like um, you know just topics you might not expect I think it's creative so I was a member of Red Fightback for a couple of years but that imploded of course one interesting project I've seen is communist-reconstruction.co.uk seems to be members of CPB that are unsatisfied with its revision revisionism and bigotry trying to move in a different direction might go nowhere but worth keeping an eye on all right i'm trying to get back to mutual aid since i freaked out when the orgs here stopped masking but i've become more comfortable being around people in my mega mask yeah it's just the situation now where so many people have just completely stopped masking that whatever mask you wear has to do double, triple, quadruple, and so on duty. And um, this is the world we live in now. A lot of people are just too much of a conformist and afraid to stand out at all, to um, you know rock the boat, quote-unquote, by wearing a mask. They're afraid of being asked questions about it. Um, I'd rather not get long COVID. I'd rather be asked a question uh, than, than get long COVID or get COVID and spread it to other people. Because remember, it's not just you when you don't mask out of, you know, social discomfort or whatever. Uh, if you do get COVID, you're going to spread it to other people. Even if you don't get long COVID, one of them might. And they might not have gotten it if it wasn't for you. You know, it's about responsibility. And I don't know. It's been um, just terribly depressing watching uh, the U.S. largely give up on an ongoing pandemic. You know, and as I said before, um, if you, here, I'll, I'll put the visual up on the screen. If the pandemic wasn't over in 2020 and it wasn't over in 2021, when the curve was much lower for a much longer time, 
Yeah, let's look at wastewater. Here we go. Is this it? Yeah. So the parts that I underlined there were, of course, in the part all the way on the right side. That's averaging about 200 uh, virus particles per uh, milliliter of sewage. They monitor the wastewater for all kinds of stuff, including SARS coronavirus 2 particles. If the pandemic wasn't over last winter or through spring and half of summer in 2021 and through most of the year in 2020, when the levels of circulating virus were much lower, why would they be over? Why would the pandemic be over now? Right? This is wishful thinking. Now, I would love it if the pandemic would just magically be gone. We have no reason to believe that right now. So we've seen lulls before, and that was even, you know, 2021 when a lot of people were not masking. It died way down for a while, and then it came back stronger than ever. And you look at what we got last year, huge, huge sustained wave with multiple peaks starting in like April. And we haven't seen that yet this year, but we don't really know what the future brings as far as future mutations. We're dealing with the XBB strains right now, which are... Some people have said they're as mutated. Uh, I mean, I've seen the charts on this. I don't know all the specifics, but they have as many mutations. They are as different from the original strain, like Wuhan strain of, of SARS coronavirus 2, as SARS coronavirus 2 was different from SARS 1 back in like 2003, 2004. So we're dealing with a very new virus. XBB, some people are calling it SARS-3. I see that some places, I don't know. But anyway, that's the assertion that is going around is this is like basically SARS-3 at this point, and we don't know what exactly it's going to do from here. But yeah, uh, keep masking N95 or better. Well, thank you for the encouragement to take as much time as I need. So remember, you know, this channel came out of me wanting to read more. We've done a lot of other stuff along the way. Ultimately, it's still kind of at the core is about me finding interesting stuff that answers some of the questions I have and the trains of thought I'm on about learning Marxism. And a lot of the time, there are side trains that tie in with current events that sort of usurp the channel and get in the way of like whatever track I personally was on. But for me to keep doing this thing long term, it does really have to kind of be grounded in that original thing of like, hey, I wanted to read more. I'm glad so many people are getting so much value out of it. Um, aside from just me, which is why I started putting it online in the first place. But that is ultimately sort of the appeal for me. I am also really happy about a lot of the people that I've met through doing this and contacts that I've made through doing this. And you all have sent me a lot of really interesting stuff that has accelerated the learning process. So I greatly appreciate that. But um, at the end of the day, like I got to keep doing stuff that's interesting to me. Otherwise, the channel just becomes an absolute fucking chore. So something to keep in mind. I'm with the Socialist Party in England, certainly not TERFs, but Trotskyist. I don't know why they don't just call themselves ML and why they feel the need to pick a side after Lenin. Well, Trotskyism is a really, really entrenched phenomenon, especially in the UK. Um, 
I don't know all of the ins and outs of exactly how that came to be. I just know that it is the case. It's also the case to a fair degree in the United States as well. Um, Trotsky has literally turned me off to be, like, I think I would have become a communist much earlier. However, my first real world contact with socialists was Trotskyists. I found them utterly insufferable in every way. It literally made me decide I wasn't a socialist. And then I wasted a lot of time in, you know, the sort of, um, the, the, the netherworld of non-communist leftism before eventually just going, I need to go study Marxism again, you know, and that's kind of where this channel came from. I agree, I think labor and local organizing are the most important things for the time being. If you don't have that grassroots network, building class consciousness and building ways that people can resist and do actions, you got nothing but speeches and rhetoric, you know? You can have all the fucking debates online you want to. Doesn't mean a fucking thing if there isn't a mass movement, you know? And then even if you do if you do get a mass movement, there's nothing to indicate that they're actually, like, listening to your media grift either. So I think people in some of these streaming things get a really overinflated sense of their own importance. And, you know, hey, great. You know, you're building some media outlet. It's not like that's no accomplishment. It's an accomplishment, you know? It's been uh, rewarding watching S4A grow uh, up to almost 15,000 subscribers right now. Um, and we didn't even have to resort to clownery to do it, is the best part. Um, yeah, I mean, that is an accomplishment. It's a feat. But if what you're doing has no relationship to the real world, then it really is just abstract, you know, and, and it's really just you stroking your ego then. My opinion about Middle East communist parties, I don't know. The commenter is saying they are really drowned in nationalism more so than socialism, and that is not good for the proletariat. I think that, well, I can't speak to that specifically because I'm just not, not my area of expertise or familiarity. I do think that, um, you know, as the socialist movement generally has sort of backslid into revisionism, nationalism has almost become confused with socialism to a great extent. Um, you see that now with, you know, quote, communists supporting Russia and, you know, arguably in China as well. We just did the late cultural revolution part A audiobook on the channel, which was talking about that. People also, actually, part B of that talks about Vietnam also sort of leaning more into the nationalist side. I think that these things are somewhat debatable, but I think the tendency overall, um, I mean, and it comes out of the movement, especially after World War II, but, you know, throughout the 20th century, of um, overexploited or colonized countries having movements for national liberation that socialists heavily participated in um, that were at least quasi-socialist in some way but then in some cases the nationalism became the more dominant element and I think that that is just sort of an ongoing thing that I don't know what the tipping point will be for a course correction there and for proletarian elements to reassert themselves 
Um, but it's something to watch for, and it's something I think to keep analyzing and, and theorizing about as it goes on. Because, um, yeah, nationalism is, is a huge thing, and, and it can be very opportunistic in terms of claiming, you know, to, to represent all classes in society and the proletariat and its workers' liberation, but it's really nationalism. So, you know, it's far from the end of the road as far as socialist liberation goes. I don't like the TERF acronym. Most of the TERFs aren't even really radical feminists. They just seem like trad wives. Yeah, I, I don't know the exact origin of TERF. Um, you do see a lot of them, I mean, self-identifying as that. They're like, I'm a radical feminist and I hate trans women or whatever. So, um, I don't know, but your objection is noted. Did I see the Vosh Midwestern Marx debate? No. No. Um, I guess you could have paid me to watch it, but it would have required being paid to watch it. I think as I heard someone from an Indian communist movement say, you can't help on an international level until you organize yourself. So I believe we should start with labor, I organized at my former job with Starbucks with an okay union, but without organizing ourselves, we couldn't change that. Yeah, um, you do have to be become organized to be more of a help because organized workers are more effective than non-organized workers. So yeah, Luna Oi is the Vietnamese YouTuber, correct? Yes, that is correct. I linked to her on the S4A channel right now. If you go to the channels tab, there's a number of uh, other channels I linked to. Somebody was recommending some channels, and, you know, I, I linked to people that I either, you know, respect their work and have followed it for a while, or I've actually been in contact with them or something. Um, you know, I'm not really going to just put up a channel because somebody recommended it. I believe Luna Oi has a book out recently about her experiences while traveling the U.S. and how much worse it is than Vietnam. Yeah, we covered, uh, I don't know if she has a book out, but... I actually talked about, uh, she had a Twitter thread about, I guess she stayed with her partner's um, family in the U.S. for a while, and she wrote about, she wrote a Twitter thread about all the things that she was, like, shocked about conditions in the U.S. We did that, I don't know, maybe somewhere in the 60s or 70s as for a live stream. Somebody said, uh, I don't have the luxury of avoiding long COVID at this point. I've had COVID three times and I haven't been the same since. Do you mean you don't have the luxury of not avoiding it? Um, because if, or are you saying you just, you already have it? Anyway, everyone should avoid long COVID. It's terrible. I had it. I haven't been the same since either. I'm better now but I am not the same and was really not the same through most of 2021 but the only way really guaranteed to avoid long COVID is to avoid short COVID don't get infected but um yeah and every time you get reinfected your odds of getting health complications organ damage whatever compounds you it, it goes up it's not just even odds every time um Every time you get reinfected, your odds go up. So, yeah, it's like the first time, you know, your role. Well, what is it? What would it be? I think uh, for uh, non-vaccinated people, 
the odds of long COVID were something like 30 to 40 percent. And then in vaccinated people, it was like 16 percent. So about one in six. So the first time you're rolling a D6 and then maybe the next time you're rolling a D4 and then, you know what I mean? So it's like your odds go up of getting it with uh, with reinfection, some kind of nasty negative health outcome, brain damage, heart damage, lung damage, so on, immune damage. And then, of course, getting immune damage affects everything else. The COVID response and military aid to Ukraine will go down as Biden's biggest failures. Yeah, I mean, take your pick. COVID is huge. It's not exclusive to Biden, as is neither is military aid to Ukraine. But, I mean, these are things we've seen across all of the U.S. allied countries, more or less. But, yeah, they're not good. I mean, as far as the military aid to Ukraine... Uh, yeah, there's definitely, they're just, they keep dumping weapons into a war that looks like it has no chance of stopping anytime soon, really. So it's just creating more destruction, more death, and not getting any closer to peace. Ooh, we got an edgelord in here. The PSYOP is over. Definitely not masking. Wow. Tell you, tell you what else you're definitely not doing, commenting anymore. Bye. I 100% would not read these texts without an audiobook, without them being in audiobook form. You are one of the people who is uploading audiobooks and thus progressing the movement. Thanks. Well, you're welcome. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they help me to read the things, too. It's more engaging and interesting for me to, you know, do them as audiobooks. Sometimes I put in commentary if ideas occur to me and make sure that I do the reading. So thank you for being part of the audience out there. That is, you know, the reason I keep doing this. So what the fuck? You had an okay start. Who are you talking to? My introduction to politics was National Socialism from my sister. So your sister's a Nazi? How did that go? I'm serious, by the way. I mean, I'm interested in the sociology of, like, how did your sister become a Nazi? What what was going on there? Where did she get it from? What's your background? The ISO were trots ostensibly. Not, not ostensibly. They were Trotskyist. They were my introduction, and they did good education. Um, never been a fan of the ISO. That's all I can really tell you. And yeah, not ostensibly. They were definitely Trotskyist. As the International Socialist Organization broke up in 2018, I believe, over the way that they handled allegations of sexual assault. I share your audiobooks when teaching people. I find it a useful tool. Good. <laughs> How much would I need to be paid to watch the Vosh and whatever? I have no idea. Uh... The Vosh and who is he? Oh, Midwestern Marks. I mean, it's just such fucking grifting. I, I haven't watched any... The only time I've ever watched any Vosh thing is just when he was, like, trending for saying something awful. And then I did, like, half a dozen response videos in the span of three years. That's the only time I've ever even heard of Vosh, to be honest. I, I never... I was never, like, watching streamers before doing this channel. All of this was brand new to me. When I started doing this channel in the winter of 2020. 
really like right before the pandemic. Um, anyway, yeah, <clears throat> the debate was full of errors and logical fallacies on both sides. Well, here's what you get. Here's what you really get. Let me find, there's, there was a post I made about it um, that to me summed it all up. Uh, let me find it. This will take a second, but um, it's just watching people like doing these gotcha word traps and things. Like there's nothing even slightly sincere about it. Um, Cop tactic word traps, showy debate theatrics, hollow rhetorical ploys, an endless, meaningless gotcha drama carousel for liberals. Oh, so you support mass murder then? So you would literally fuck a horse. You're a horse fucker. You just said so. Like, it's just trying to catch people saying things and then, oh, you're busted. I just tricked you into saying something. Like, there's no point to it. None. So I I don't know what anybody gets out of these things except again it's it's just these team sports for people to just cheer on something it's a big diversion instead of organizing or whatever else yeah I'm I'm really good I'm really good I I will leave all those streamers and shit to just the troll world that wants to you know nibble on and digest that stuff I, I sincerely have better things to do all right here's so the person talking about Middle East communism. Let's read the comment. Um, actually, Middle East nationalism is very different from Vietnam's nationalism, because in Vietnam, nationalism made proletariat organized better and made the road for socialism. But in the Middle East, they say we're not going to fall for socialism and lose our religion or nationalism. In the Middle East, religion and nationalism are like a wall against organizing, and it is making a path for fascism or Nazism more than pure socialism. Okay, fair point, and I see what you're saying. Um, in Vietnam... Even if you want to say that the movement for Vietnamese liberation at some point veered into too much nationalism or had too many nationalist elements, and again, this is not everyone's opinion, um, it definitely had a strong grounding in socialism and Marxism. Again, some of the criticisms are like from Maoists, for example, who criticize uh, the North Vietnamese for like allying with the social imperialist USSR too much or, or something like that, hence some of these um, criticisms. But I see what you're saying, that the nationalism in the Middle East is not grounded in socialism to anywhere near the same degree. Rather, it's grounded in more sort of chauvinism uh, and religion, other react more reactionary types of things, um, and not proletarian liberation. So, yeah, it does take the proletarian alliance, you know, or some sort of element in there to keep it remotely on a progressive track. And, yeah, I can see what you're saying. It's making more of a path for fascism or Nazism because that it's a more reactionary nationalism. Like, for example, in Iran, that they worship the kings that existed 2,500 years ago and want to use their methods for the 21st century. Yeah, that's just straight-up reactionary, so... Do I plan on reading more in Verhoja in the future? Yes, absolutely. Um, and yeah, a lot of his works are very long. But yes, in fact, we're doing the... And when, it, by, when I say doing over time as time allows and other similar qualifiers, um, we're doing the American Party of Labor, which is a Hojaist party, 
recommended reading list, which includes about a dozen Hoja things. We've done a little bit so far, and I like what I have read from Hoja. Um, in fact, we're going to do one on the Chinese um, Cultural Revolution. Can the Cultural Revolution be called a proletarian revolution? Because I have like several texts that we're, I want to do, well, I have lined up to do next um, about that topic. So, yeah. But then beyond that, there will be more Hoja as well. Part of the reason I haven't done more Hoja, I am somewhat trying to keep things somewhat chronological, and there's still a lot of Marx, Engels, and Lenin I want to do, then get more into the sort of early USSR, but post-Lenin, 20s and 30s, you know, Stalin versus Trotsky thing, a little Bukharin, and like the other stuff thrown in there, more of the Chinese Revolution uh, materials. And then when you get into the second half of the 20th century, you know, that's where Hoja starts coming up more, commenting on Khrushchev's USSR, um, Cultural Revolution era Mao, and so on. Keeping up with the grifters. Yeah, it's just like everyone should tune it out. Now, it gets hard because people like um, Jackson Hinkle, is, he's a regular on the Jimmy Dore show. So he's getting like constant airtime. So you can ignore him in a certain sense, but even if you ignore him, he's still being promoted. So sometimes it has to be commented on. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, they shouldn't get any undue attention more than is just sort of necessary if it gets, there's a particular flare up that requires comment. Theory and practice of the revolution is a criticism of the three worlds theory, which bears a lot of similarities to what we're calling campism today. In fact, you might even say that it helped to set campism in motion. Yeah, I would argue in essence that they are the same thing. Exactly. So I actually pulled an entire set of readings, which again, another reason I want to pull back from the live streaming because there are so many readings. But I pulled an entire reading list about Three Worlds Theory and Hoja's criticisms of it are a part of that. But there are a lot of sort of preliminary readings that are referenced in the footnotes of various things about Three Worlds Theory that I think are um, worth reading first. So, yeah, pulling back from the streams and maybe doing one or two a month is going to result in a lot more audiobooks. That's really uh, what I want to focus on. Also, just being somewhere at a specific time, a specific, you know, day... That gets really challenging, and it has been really challenging. So, yeah, bread tube and circuses, very well said. I didn't, you know, I read that comment, and I didn't actually catch the pun until I said it out loud. Congrats. I feel the people who are the most pessimistic only get politics from Twitter, and think there are three camps of socialist, Pat Sox, debate bro, nationalists, and insulated Maoists who reject everything except the Philippines. I'll, I'll pass on that for now. But yeah, Twitter, for a lot of this month, I would just kind of like log in, upload my video, spread the link around, log off. I, I kind of just got to a point where I'm like, I am just really clearly, visibly getting a lot more out of just doing the readings and that kind of thing. I try to engage with the public out there. In fact, I was just saying... Uh, you know, there was a post about Midwest Marx and this and that. And I just said something. I'm like, look, I don't watch Midwest Marx, so I don't know. But here's, you know, something he said. Maybe this will 
help you. And it got far, far, far more engagement than anything else I had put up for like two weeks. And there were better posts that were more educational and interesting. And it's dismaying to see people. And it might just be part of, you know, like the people who spend a lot of time on Twitter really go for that drama and, and uh, streamer personality clashes. But you really shouldn't. It's not, you know, it's junk food. It's not really enriching you at all. Um, but people tend to go for that much, much more. So if you're running a grift, that's naturally what people are going to do because um, it gets a lot of engagement, gets you a lot of the clicks, gets you a lot of video plays for ad revenue and all that shit. So, yeah, it is junk, though. It's junk. So you got to take that with a with a grain of salt. And, you know, there were even uh, other YouTube channels that I previously had had some level of respect for their politics and, you know, but are really no better than um, your average sort of radlib debate bro troll. And if, if that's where you're centering your time and energy, you know, you are what you eat. So I think it's a logical conclusion of living in that world so much. As the capitalist class consolidates capital and with the added tendency of global communication via technology, the nationalist tendency is less and less important and more than ever uh, the global proletarian class identity sharpened. Yeah, I mean, capitalism is international for sure. In the beginning, uh, the bourgeoisie has to construct national markets to like sell their goods and things like that. But eventually the national borders become hindrances to the kind of trade and also the kind of imperial exploitation that they need to do. And so it, they have to ride this balance between promoting nationalism to their populations they're exploiting while also being internationalist in practice um, and being in solidarity with other capitalists across the world. This seems to be a failure of Chinese, quote, communism. They're expanding capital across Africa and Asia and South America, but failing to do Marxist education. Yeah. Um, so, as I mentioned before, the audiobook we put up, The Late Cultural Revolution, Part A, and we've done other ones, um, you know, about the reintroduction of capitalism into China in a big way since the late 1970s. Um, the more I look at that, the sort of less inspiring it is. That said, um, you know, even the vestiges of socialism in China, um, you know, if some people want to call it social democracy or whatever, it's still in some ways better than what you get in the United States. And so appears very advanced, you know, compared to a society like the U.S., um, that said, it's like, where did it come from? Where is it going? Where is it going? Where is its trajectory? And I think that that's where, you know, there's more cause for concern and criticism. 4,026,741 votes, 7.23% for KKE, the Greek Communist Party in the last elections, trying to raise it in the next election on the 25th of June. Yeah, I saw something about that. I saw that it was... Um, didn't the Greek government fail to form? Like, there were the elections, and then they couldn't form a government. And then, so is that where the June election is coming in? But I did see that uh, KKE made a big gain. So, 
yeah, good for the Greek communists. Here's here's one. You got to admit, even for someone who isn't particularly knowledgeable about politics, the fact that Nazi conversations are categorically dismissed right off the bat has an effect on people. Uh, yeah, we don't um, have conversations about Nazism other than, you know, condemning it and being critical of it. I don't know why this would surprise you. Anti-fascism is inherent to communism, socialism, you know, um, the class nature of fascism. It's the ideology of imperialist countries. It's extremely capitalist. I don't know why you would be um, at all confused about that. Drawing them to delve further into it because it's so forbidden without any... Oh, get this. Nazism is, quote, forbidden without any solid rationale. <laughs> it's Nazism. So to be banned or timed out for discussing this or... Oh, you're just asking questions. Asking questions to what appears to be a political expert is kind of odd, to say the least. This isn't a fucking Nazism stream. Is that too hard for you to grasp or what? And you're just concerned trolling. Go away. Thanks. You want to learn about fascism? We have a number of videos about it on the channel. It's not a good thing. All right. Here's a good question. Does three worlds theory have anything to do with Maoist third worldism? Despite conditions being worse in the global south, conditions change, and if there's going to be a successful revolution against capitalism, it will be a world proletarian revolution. So this is super confusing, I think, because the three worlds theory um, came in after Mao, yet the... Uh, Deng Xiaoping and, you know, that whole side of things, the dingists, as people say, said that Three Worlds Theory belonged to Mao. It was actually Mao's theory. Except I see absolutely no evidence of that whatsoever, and it's widely agreed that that is a revisionist theory introduced. It was not the brainchild of Mao, in other words. So no, those are different things. It's confusing as hell, though, and I think it's confusing on purpose. Been listening to the audiobooks, and one thing that crops up that I've always had a slightly confused understanding of is what free, okay, quote, freedom is the recognition of necessity means in Marxist theory if there's an easy way to explain or clarify it. I, I need some help placing that. I I'm not really sure what you mean. Freedom is the recognition of necessity. You got what audiobooks did you get that out of? I'm just it's not ringing a bell for me, so I I need I need my memory jogged. If you would, thank you. Uh no, Paul Krugman is not uh a good voice as a whole, no. Yeah, I mean, he, he's a neo-Keynesian. Um, so, I mean, there are definitely far worse economists out there, but um, it's it's not socialist. It's not the kind of thing that I would embrace. So, you know, as Shakespeare is saying, if someone who has used his work, he's fine, but he's just a neo-Keynesian. He just thinks that capitalism needs more government intervention. It's, sorry, intervention. 
like during the Bretton Woods era. Yeah, that's why I say it wasn't that good. Um, there's definitely far worse, though. But yeah. <laughs> Marxism is forbidden. Truly. Sorry, I was thinking about that uh, Nazi thing before where they were like, it's forbidden. If you're making it forbidden, you're just going to make people want it more. Uh, no, that's like, you might make like a 13-year-old thing. Like, most adults don't really think that way. So, again, another problem with these streams, just like the amount of literal children, I don't know. It, it, sometimes it's indistinguishable from the reasoning, whether someone is an actual adult or not. But, uh, yeah, this whole, like, I did it because you said I couldn't. Now I'm a Nazi. Wait, that's that, um, here, I think I have it. That's that, uh, that cartoon somebody did. Where they're like, you have bullied me into becoming a Nazi. Nah, I don't have it. Anyway, it's the one where, um, he's like, people who know the comic know, know what I'm talking about. It's the one where the guy ends up, like, shaving his head and getting Nazi tattoos and saying, I feel bullied, really. Yeah. So sometimes, okay, sometimes I, I tell the mods, like, time people out if they're getting out of control. Um, except for, like, if somebody comes in and their username is just, like, socialism sucks, let's go USA 1776, and they just start bombing the chat with, like, spam. You know, obviously just get rid of them. But um, somebody just got banned. MAGA underscore Trump Save America 2024. That is, like, literally <laughs> the exact... It's, like, one of... I think I've probably given that as an example screen name in the past. That's funny. Nazism wants to blame the capitalist evils on Jewish people or other minorities, enlisting workers in a fight against workers instead of owners. Yeah, they're trying to substitute racial conflict for class conflict. They want class collaboration... And then to make some racial, ethnic, religious, whatever scapegoat. Communism puts the blame of society's evils squarely on the oppressor class, which is why we cannot accept any Nazism or fascism. We must also be trained to spot covert fascism or crypto-fascism, absolutely. Yeah, we record we record these streams. It'll be posted on the YouTube channel. YouTube.com, well, it's on the screen. YouTube.com slash socialism for all. These also get posted over on SoundCloud and on Spotify. Eventually, usually there's a lag, but they go up on YouTube first. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. So thank you, Ted, for the um, extrapolation on the freedom and necessity thing. Honestly, I, I don't know what else to add to the quote that you have put here. It's very, very abstract. You know, my focus in reading Marxist... Um, Marxist theory, Marxist history, trying to tap into the international history of communism, is we in the U.S. have a lot of political problems. We need to solve these problems. It's our historical duty to do that. And if we're cut off from this, you know, 200 years of socialist history, 175 years of Marxist history, then um, we're not going to, we're, we're at a real disadvantage. You know, basically, um, if we accept that Marxism is correct, then we're having to just completely reinvent it by cutting ourselves off from it. Um, let's not do that. You know, let's just not make ourselves, put ourselves through that. Let's not make ourselves reinvent the wheel, but um, let's actually just go read the thing. 
And for me, a lot of the more sort of abstract philosophical stuff in Marx, where it doesn't, um, you know, reading through it once is one thing, but like where it doesn't tie in that directly to a lot of the historical, political, economic stuff, I tend to, you know, skim over that a little bit. And I think, anyway, that I, I tend to hate philosophy, though, in general. Like, I can grapple with it i just don't find it very um it very engaging so that that is probably the least interesting aspect some people are just super into philosophy they read lots of different philosophers and for them you know marx is primarily a philosopher it's just not really the way i look at it myself um people acting like nazism is the cookie jar mommy keeps away from them yeah it's this like forbidden delight no it's fucking nazism they want to do genocide it's not like the hidden treat like what else do you need to know about it it isn't good the single adult who would be a nazi because it is forbidden is jimmy Dore. i mean he's been moving steadily in that direction and yeah he does the same thing it's like the democrats made me become a nazi no <laughs> No, I'm not a Democrat, and I didn't become a Nazi, so, yeah. What part of the socialization of labor does not mean it has become socialist do mega-communists not understand? Yeah, absolutely. There's this thing that keeps turning up that the assertion from certain LaRouche fakers and charlatans that... Um, Production gets socialized under capitalism. That is, I mean, this is covered in the Communist Manifesto. It's extraordinarily basic. I did a stream on, or not a stream, I did a video on this in the past. If you type in, we are already living in socialism, or just search on America, it will come up. Um, but yeah, this, this comes up from time to time, this assertion that we're living in socialism now. No, that's like a libertarian point of view. Um, prior to capitalism, there was really inefficient small-scale production. When capitalism came in more and more, they created giant mills and factories and they socialized production. Dozens, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of workers would participate in the production process to just make a single, you know, item sometimes. Sometimes it would be international production, like part of it would be assembled in one country, part of it and another so production became socialized it wasn't just like one guy owned a machine and made the products it was a collaborative effort so capitalism socialized production what did it not socialize anyone anyone property <laughs> so this is really basic um, socialized production does not mean socialism because capitalism socializes production. Abolition of private property. But the LaRouches have a real problem with that as well. Because, uh, well, this was in the Jackson Hinkle video that we, um, I did a short video on. And um, what's the title of that? I think Unity, maybe if you search on Unity. Or if you search on Jackson Hinkle. I think I did maybe two videos on him. Uh, shouldn't be hard to find. But the idea that communists today don't want to abolish private property. And I had a commenter in that go, oh yeah? Where did Marx say 
that we need to abolish private property and like literally the manifesto and they were like oh okay kind of reminded me of the um gary johnson aleppo moment and what is aleppo oh right yeah that's uh you need to know stuff like that so no socializing production doesn't make socialism capitalism does that it's when you socialize property abolition of bourgeois property yeah not personal you know that can be a private property in a sense no private property in the sense of bourgeois property um productive infrastructure the means of production that needs to be worked on in a social way to make products we associate with modern life but yet is owned privately uh not by the people who work the thing but um, by some you know private capitalist that's fundamental you have to abolish capitalism and capitalist ownership i don't even know where these people are coming from it's such buffoonery yeah i so literally i don't know what part of it they don't understand but they keep saying this over and over just paid rent not sure how anyone can see two bedroom apartments going for 1700 a month and not want to redacted your landlord and overthrow capital we're in a housing crisis like absolutely actually here this is the first other thing i've put on the screen no it isn't i already put that biobot thing up but here's another thing to put on the screen where is it 10-year challenge uh house little like one story 2012 150 thousand dollars minimum wage 725 2022 same house magically five hundred fifty thousand dollars minimum wage still 725 we're in a housing crisis it's fueling a homelessness crisis because homelessness is a lack of housing that people can actually afford so yeah um there was also a story that came up recently thanks to at d sure would be on twitter david landlords in their private facebook group reacting to news that a fellow landlord murdered his tenants now this story was going around a couple days ago and um, i don't have close-ups of it but all the landlords are like wow yeah don't press um don't press landlords we'll kill you or whatever or sometimes it's just best to leave if your landlord wants hey or it's literally shelter you need it to live any kind of a normal life and we shouldn't have landlords so as as he continues i thought this was an excellent point Landlords get a false sense of security because they have the backing of the state. Their warped sense of entitlement makes them think that the state is their oppressor rather than their enabler, like a spoiled child furious that their guardian doesn't let them do anything they want. So they imagine that a world where the state doesn't exist or doesn't intervene in land relations is a world that would favor them. But that's just what it is, imagining. They imagine that in such a world, it is us, the propertyless, that would need to be afraid and not them. Because, yeah, who's going to enforce your private property then? But, of course, you know, they would they would figure that out quickly and they would try to keep all of the police functions just... Um, it's just all about skewing it towards, uh, you know, them doing whatever they want. So that point about the false sense of security... The state enables them to do what they do, but because it restricts them from a few things that could jeopardize the entire rulership of capital over society, they focus on that 
And they're like, look, they're not letting me do what I want. No, without them, you wouldn't be able to do any of this. They're not letting you do 5% of what you want, such as literally murdering a tenant that you got into a disagreement with. And therefore, this whole warped sense of, you know, the, the whole perspective is skewed. So excellent point there. Uh, D sure would be. Jimmy Dore walked back the time he spit in Alex Jones's face, arguably the best thing he's ever done. He said Jones made him laugh, and he did a spit take. Yeah, I remember that. That was 2016. And Jimmy Dore used to not be completely reactionary. It's maybe surprising to some people now. Um, he used to be much better. Uh, starting in 2017, maybe even late 2016, he started throwing that away. And in part because of a pissing contest with Jenk and TYT, he started, um, you know, I'm going to make more money, I'm going to have a bigger channel than TYT, etc., etc. And going actually left was too uncertain, I think. But because he was committed to this ego battle pissing contest, he turned to the audience that would be most reliable for getting those numbers up and getting the ad money up and the super chats and whatever else. And that would be libertarians and that's where Jimmy Dore has been wallowing ever since. Hinkle went mask off when he said he was against abolishing private property, literally the whole point of communism. Yeah, if you don't understand something like that, give up, it's, it's over. Somebody's laughing at the what is Aleppo. That was a great moment in US history. And what is Aleppo? He later explained he thought it was like an acronym Libertarians are, like, real big on, like, making fun of, like, government agencies and programs and things that have, like, acronyms, but, and then, uh, they're like, uh, it's in Syria, and he's like, right. Love, love that, because you can see the panic on his face in that moment, he's like, whoops, <laughs> like, clearly that moment in his mind just went in slow motion, anyway. Quote, the transformation of scattered private property arising from individual labor into capitalist private property, or scattered private property into capitalist private property, is naturally a process incomparably more protracted, violent, and difficult than the transformation of capitalistic private property already practically resting on socialized production into socialized property. Thank you, Flashy. Yeah, that's from Marx, Capital, Volume 1, Chapter 32. This is like very basic in, in Marxism. Um, always good to have another restatement of it. But I mean, if you're out there as some kind of authority and are saying that like we're living in socialism because production has largely been socialized, sorry, no. Um, it's the, the means of production that need to be socialized. Anyway. The landlords reacting to that murder was not shocking at all, but it was still sickening to see them so mask off. This will keep going and going and going until the masses decide they've had enough. And really, I had enough a long time ago, and I'm just really, really trying to get ready for, uh, and, you know, encourage other people to, you know, be fed up. Like, it's time. We're done. <laughs> you know, we're through waiting. We're getting organized. And I don't know what people are waiting for. I do think fear is the overriding factor. People are afraid to organize and stand up. It has to be done, though. 
The small capitalist hates the government because they have to see themselves as the hero, but also a reality that they're envious of the more successful parasites. Well, and again, they, they look back to the days when the monopolies weren't quite so entrenched, when there was still a chance that one of them might, you know, really get big. But those opportunities don't exist to the same extent that they did, you know, a hundred years ago or something like that. And that's a reality in the development of capitalism they just refuse to accept. This is why having an understanding of historical materialism means you have a superior understanding of, of the development of society and how to form your politics. Mechanazis, another name for the pet socks, uh, don't even read Marx. Socialized production does not mean socialist property is socialism. The point is the socialized production is in contradiction to the property relations, capitalist accumulation. Right. Right. You have socialized production, um, yet the property is all being owned that, that's, that by somebody else. That's, that's in contradiction. I'm about to head to a community meeting on city stabilization and housing development. They're converting a local motel into a homeless facility. Yeah, um, I mean, it's definitely better than being on the streets. Uh, we need public housing again, you know, not just like converting motels. It's something. It's something. But we need just to normalize people having regular fucking housing. I just looked up the Gary Johnson thing. Amazing. It really is. that I love the look in his eyes in that moment. He's like, oh, right. But he's like, fuck. <laughs> anyway. It was more than deer in headlights. It was like, shit. <laughs> like, he knew how stupid he looked in that moment. Anyway, because he was trying to be really flippant about it. And, uh, yeah. All right, anyway. Uh, what do we have here? Just some odds and ends that I wanted to just put up on the screen here. So it was Memorial Day in the United States recently, aka like Soldier Worship Day, when the U.S. pretends that all of the things that its military has done are, you know, completely just and all the people who serve the military are saints and, and so on. Um, there was a soldier, here it is, who, this guy, now... Disclaimer, this guy's a libertarian. Um, I uh, sent him a copy of The State and Revolution and, you know, mentioned, uh, hey, I noticed from your feed you seem to be a libertarian. Um, I mean, he's sort of like prime candidate for it, like mid-20s, white guy in the U.S. coming out of the military, um, starting to be disillusioned, I guess, with the U.S. and, and things. Uh, for a lot of people, the Libertarian Party is like kind of one of the first stops. Uh, I, I don't know much about this guy's background anyway, but mentioned to him, hey, the, the actual problem here is capitalism and, uh, you know, being a Libertarian is not actually going to help you long term. But if you're talking about the state, well, here's another perspective. Gave him a copy of the State and Revolution. Anyway, but he had a long post. Um, there was a quote in here. I was reeled in by the propaganda machine like so many others. After three years, I fully realized what I had gotten myself into. And to be clear, he said he did not deploy. So he was just off, you know, doing whatever, but he was not in combat. 
Um, hence, I think, probably why it took a longer time for him to realize what he had gotten into. However, to make up for my misdeeds, I've made it my mission to help keep impressionable people away from predatory military recruiters. Um, he also started his post by saying, This Memorial Day, I refuse to honor the troops. There's nothing honorable about serving the interests of the state. Again, you see the sort of libertarian framing of like, it's the state and whatever. But point is, somebody realized, hey, being in the U.S. military is actually not a good thing. Now, the problem is you can't just quit the military. Um, and again, this guy didn't deploy, so he didn't get as far in as some people do. Um, but there was a discussion that was going on uh, underneath this. Where did I put it? Oh, so somebody asked, can't you just quit the army? They won't let you do that. He said, no, you can't. It's a process. It's actually kind of hard to get out of the army. Um, so this conversation went on. And so they said, what can they do to someone for quitting without going through this process? Reply, you can be put in jail for longer than your service time. And depending on your position, you might be charged with treason. Basically, if they wanted to, they can kill you just for handing in a resignation. Now, this is different at different stages of your commitment to being in the military. Um, in other words, like you can sign some of the initial paperwork and then just never show up for basic training, and there may not be any consequences for that. In fact, um, I was reading an article on that, which I wasn't able uh, to, well, I got into some discussions about this with people, and um, let me see if I can find the thing again. I won't be able to put it um, up on the screen, but I can read it. So there are, there are ways of getting out of the uh, army if you realize, hey, I've made a horrible mistake and I don't want to be um, serving the U.S. military. So this is an article from OperationMilitaryKids.org titled Six Ways to Get Out of the Military Early. Um, and so they talk about six types of early separations um, and different types of discharges explained. Anyway, number one, entry-level discharge. So one possible early out from the military is the entry-level separation. This is before you complete 180 days of active duty. Once your contract goes into effect, and it is a contract, we'll come back to that later, the countdown to 180 days begins. Um, so it's less an opportunity for the person who signed up to find a way out. It's more to like for the people in charge to be like, hey, you shouldn't be here. But some of the reasons for an entry level separation include failure to adapt, failure to progress through training, lack of self-discipline, lack of effort, psychological problems, or minor discipline issues. So the commanders will consider all of those reasons um, when considering entry-level separation, um, but it has to be unintentional. So if you're purposely uh, acting psycho or whatever, they may just tell you, like, they may just discipline you but not kick you out if they don't believe that you genuinely have you know, psychological problems or whatever. If they believe that the person is purposely utilizing a lack of effort to get out of their you know, military commitment, the result can be different, and it's basically a neutral outcome. So number two, 
is not showing up at the military entrance processing station or MEPS, M-E-P-S. Um, so you're allowed to leave the MEPS center at any point before you leave for basic training. You also don't have to show up to MEPS at all. The recruiter will likely be upset and you may have like an awkward conversation with them, but there's no consequences for it. Three is convenience of the government. When the government um, just feels like it, they can separate you from the military. Um, generally, it's considered honorable unless it is an entry-level separation or if it would, uh, yeah. So that is number three. Number four, military hardship. Sometimes they make um, exceptions for hardships like, uh, you know, family members, family situations and things like that. Number five, which I think is what this person did, is conscientious objection. It is difficult but possible to become a conscientious objector, um, and it can take, you know, quite a long time. You have to write essays and things like that and explain that you're opposed to all wars, not just that war, and so on. Number six is early release. Um, there can be various reasons, such as educational commitments or taking public office, which might create a conflict of interest for the military. Otherwise, there's not a ton of ways to get out of this thing. So, um, you know, there was some discourse coming up recently about comparing people in the military to police. And while there are clearly similarities, um, there are also differences as far as the level of commitment, the ease of getting out, and also the ways in which recruiters um, target people and suck them in. There are also some clear differences, which if you actually want to understand the situation, to speak on it intelligently, you should probably come up to speed on that. So beyond that, you can just leave. It's called desertion. They don't really take kindly to it. This is one of the laws about desertion. So you may know the phrase AWOL, away without official leave. AWOL is temporary. Deserting is going AWOL with the intent of not coming back. So this is the law. Any member of the armed forces who, one, without authority, goes or remains absent from their unit, organization, or place of duty with the intent to remain away therefrom permanently, two, quits their unit, organization, or place of duty with the intent to avoid hazardous duty or to shirk important service, or three, without being regularly separated from one of the armed forces, enlists or accepts an appointment in the same or another one of the armed forces without fully disclosing the fact that they have not been regularly separated or enters any foreign armed service except when authorized by the United States is guilty of desertion. B. Any commissioned officer of the armed forces who, after tender of their resignation, but before notice of its acceptance, quits their post or proper duties without leave, basically you don't go through the approval process, um, and with intent to remain away therefrom permanently, is guilty of desertion. So even if you tender your resignation, but it's not been accepted, and you leave, that's desertion too. C. Any person found guilty of desertion or attempting to desert shall be punished if the offense is committed in time of war by death or such other punishment as a court-martial may direct, but if the desertion or attempt to desert occurs at any other time by such punishment, in other words, not in time of war, by, by such punishment other than death as a court-martial may direct. So if you desert 
during war, uh, it's punishment up to and including killing you. And if it's not in wartime, then any other punishment as a court-martial may direct. So they don't take kindly to it. And there are a number of higher-profile desertion cases um, where, due to various circumstances, you know, there was not death. It was like a year or two years or something like that of prison time. But it is a gigantic risk, particularly if you don't have people who can, you know, hide you, set you up with a new life, or like get you to somewhere that um, this isn't going to come back to you. So anyway, um, there is a... I mean, if you're interested, you know, we mentioned labor union support work, tenant union support work, things of various kinds. If you're interested in counter-recruitment work, this is a concrete thing that people do. You can attend trainings on counter-recruitment work, find out to, how to counter military recruitment in your area. That's something that you can be involved in because they start in on kids in high school um, well before uh, you can act well before they're old enough to actually sign up. So they get kids into junior ROTC and they start kind of brainwashing them and prepping them for it when the kids are just way too young to understand what is going on. Um, and especially, you know, you don't have a real good education. You live in a real isolated place in the U.S. You really may not have no idea what the U.S. military is really about. Some people do and join anyway, it's reprehensible. Some don't, it's not all one speed. Um, but I highly recommend becoming familiar with counter-recruitment work and it's just good stuff to, uh, to know about. If you're ever in a situation where you're talking to somebody who's considering joining the military, trying to talk them out of it, making them aware of their other options, making them aware of the risks and problems and the lies Recruiters lie to people all the time. Um, they will tell them, oh, you can get up to this amount of money for college or whatever. The reality is you'll get a tiny fraction of that. So anyway, there, there's a lot of different things going on there, but I, I do recommend that. Now back on the libertarian thing for a moment. Um, libertarian Party on Memorial Day posted, on this Memorial Day, we honor fallen U.S. soldiers and mourn their losses. Many of them were our relatives, friends, and colleagues, and we miss them dearly. Politicians in the corporate press will tell you that they all died for your freedom, but the sad fact is that it isn't so. They then wrote a really long thread about, you know, you're serving empire and this and that. And, you know, I retweeted it, or quote tweeted it with, Here's a classic example of the hyper-capitalist Libertarian Party pretending to be anti-war. Now that um, cannabis has been decriminalized in more places, the, that doesn't really set the Libertarian Party apart so much, so they have to lean more on this, oh, we're the anti-war party. No, you're fucking not. Capitalism is why the USA fights wars, has to fight wars, it's in the nature of capitalism, and the Libertarian Party can do nothing to change that because it's fiercely pro-capitalist and anti-socialist. So when you see this cropping up in the wild, counter it. The issue is capitalism. You're a capitalist party. But this is the Libertarian Party's whole thing, this kind of fake populism. And, um, you know, it's not that dissimilar from a lot of the other smaller, more right-wing nationalist parties that you find in various countries. It's a neoliberal party. They want to deregulate, privatize, and defund public programs. 
So how is that actually different from the overall age we're living in? It's no alternative at all, and they're definitely not anti-war. To the extent that they're at all sincerely anti-war, this is just idealist confusion. You can't be anti-war and be for capitalism. It's in the nature of capitalism. Highly advanced capitalism is imperialism, so comes with the territory. It has to keep expanding, taking over other areas to exploit by hook or crook, and there's no way around that. Capitalism will collapse if it doesn't keep doing that. So don't fall for this libertarian bullshit. And, uh, you know, it was good to see that uh, soldier get out of the army, realize it was not a good thing to do with your life. But again, uh, getting out and just being a libertarian, barely an improvement. We need to, you know, again, make efforts to put materials out there to engage people in um, the actual alternative, becoming a socialist, learning communism, etc., you know, whether they'll take it or not is another story, but we make the effort to put the educational materials out there for people who are ready to access them at least. So, Memorial Day, what can you do? And the other thing, uh, a very common response <clears throat> to this kind of thing was people saying like, hey, I get criticizing the military. Not so much to me, but I would see it uh, being posted around. Hey, um... Criticizing the military is fine, but this isn't the day to do it. No, it's exactly the day to do it. This is the day everybody's talking about the military. So do it, you know? <laughs> it's like, it's actually the most relevant day to do it. Very strange, that. All right, what's the chat saying while we take a break between little segments here? Recently told some of my family members that not only am I an atheist, but also a communist, and to my surprise... They didn't overreact. Well, good. You know, a lot of people get a lot of uh, bad family tensions about that. <clears throat> My sympathies go out to all of you. And to think that Gary Johnson was the most sensible libertarian at their party's presidential debates. They asked them about driver's license. The responses were about were about what you'd expect from those nutjobs. I mean, I in a way, I almost respect the anti-driver's license people more because they're at least adhering to their principles. The, um, what was that guy that gets cited sometimes as a meme? Uh, was it in the driver's license part? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the, the guy, I think he had like a mullet. And Gary Johnson was like, yeah, I'd like to see some competency demonstrated before we let people drive cars. And the whole audience booed. And then it went to one of the other candidates, and he's like, what's next? A license to make toast in your own damn toaster? I love that response. Um, it is, you know, almost amusing, because you know that it just will never gain any traction. But um, pure comedy value, for sure. Uh, taking it seriously, not so much. But yeah, as, as I've said before, the Libertarian Party in the 70s, I mean, it obviously did become this just sort of Reaganite, neoliberal, you know, moral majority loving, like just straight up right wing party. There definitely was a time, I feel like more in the 70s, when you could find some like truly kook, anarchist, like kind of criminal type people in the Libertarian Party who were truly just liberty extremists like i get to do whatever i want all the time the kind of people who would just like you know have like multiple fake identities and shit like that 
I mean, that's that's living the dream. But to think that that's going to become like a mass movement or some basis for running society is just fucking crazy. So anyway. Uh, saw somebody spell libertarian as libertarian, like with a Y the other day, and thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, one of the old uh, Libertarian Party candidates, Michael Benarek, um, he used to say, he's like, libertarians are libertarians. And then he would like pause. And you're like, were you just emphasizing the word liberty or were you also emphasizing the Aryan part? Hmm. Yeah, it's actually spelled libertarian because they, you just want to laugh out loud. Lulberts. Yeah, that's... <laughs> what are we going to need next? A license to make toast in our own damn toaster? That same guy rage quit on a debate with Sam Cedar. To be fair, I think leaving a debate with Sam Cedar is, like, understandable in any circumstances. But I'm sure that guy was also, like, even more ridiculous than Sam Cedar. Do I have any thoughts about the Communist Party of Canada... No, I don't know that much about them. I heard there was some scandal involving like an orgy or something in the recent past. That is all I know. And, you know, yeah. Is it true that John McCain mistakenly killed over 100 U.S. soldiers? I do not know. My dad went AWOL when I was a kid, or so he tells me. He was just National Guard, though. Back in high school, we had these National Guard recruiters come to our school on BMX bikes. They set up a ramp and did a few really lame tricks, trying way too hard to be cool. They were begging us to clap. Was Jeb Bush among them? Please clap. They were also talking like total dude bros, saying stuff like radical. The National Guard is a radical place to work, they said. That's when I knew recruiters were gross. Yeah, they, it's like the guy at the bar who just won't leave you alone and is just like using every creepy pickup move in the book. It's utterly transparent. You're not interested and so on. Yeah, literally the how do you do fellow kids meme. Yes, I'm opposed to all wars except the class war. There you go. I'm not sure the U.S. military recognizes the class war, so I think you might be okay. Actually, you know, that came up uh, seriously uh, a while back because somebody was making the point that you might not be able to become a conscientious objector for that reason if you're a Marxist-Leninist uh, be because, because of what Marxism-Leninism is. And if anybody has resources on that, I'm not sure, but I would love to see them. I did not see anything. Somebody's asking about resources for building a resume. I mean, honestly, there's a lot of... I don't know if you need, like, specific resources. There's so many resume templates out there that you can, you know... I don't know. Ask ChatGPT, I guess. Funny, completely off topic, some lawyer used ChatGPT to make, like, a case brief... And he asked for it to do, uh, you know, do, do his, like, filing with citations. 
and it literally made up completely fictional half a dozen court cases that just didn't exist. And I guess he actually used it in a court case. And the judge was, like, furious. Um, yeah, don't use, like, chatbot-level AI to try to win a court case if you're a lawyer. <laughs> like, that is the epitome of laziness. Amazing. During times of war, so always... So, I don't know, is the U.S. even officially at war? Because most of these things are conflicts, but is the United States at war? Because they always say that, like, the last time the U.S. actually declared war was Korea, when the U.S. committed atrocious violence. Lists of wars involving the United States. There's all these articles about the U.S. heading for a second civil war. But are these officially declared wars? That's my question. Because there's the AUMF, the authorization authorization for the use of military force, which just like lets the U.S. invade all kinds of places. Uh, 21st century war. Anyway. Yeah, it's like there's the interventions and there's like other terms, but I don't think the U.S. has declared war in a long time. My dad was actually stationed in West Germany in the early 1990s. He joined the army when he was 16. He joined because he did bad in school and felt it was his only decision. I don't respect the decision he made to join the army, but I think it's a good example of how the military preys upon the vulnerable. He seems pretty left-leaning now anyway, but he never really talks about his time in the army, so I don't know the specifics about it. Yeah. Um, there is... A shift and we've covered this in the past in live streams there is a shift that happened uh, in the 21st century in particular where the US Army stopped going after the absolute poorest and least educated so much and that was driven from what I was reading in large part because the army uses a lot more technology now than it used in the 70s and 80s and so on and they can't use the most uneducated people so the army's need for more sort of computer literate technologically capable even more educated people is driving a shift in who they're recruiting um anyway i was pulling a number of things about this and i'll probably do more about it in a future video but um there's a lot of people who try to reduce this to simply everyone joining the U.S. military, you know, has read the complete works of Parenti and Lenin and knows exactly what they're getting into and they know all about U.S. imperialism and how they're going to, you know, benefit from exploiting some other country. That's not really the case. Some do, um, but that's a very simplistic notion, which if you're trying to actually combat the phenomenon of recruitment and military enlistment in general. Uh, there are more effective ways of doing that, such as actually understanding the dynamics behind the phenomenon. So anyway. Call of Duty has active recruiters that play online and talk to the kids online to skirt around not being able to try and recruit kids below a certain age. They've been doing that for a long time. 
uh, like 20 years, or I mean, I'm trying to think of, uh, there was a particular thing. Let's, let me see something. But yeah, they would um, monitor people who got high scores in the game and then try to recruit them in real life. Yeah, starting out in 2003. So it was about 20 years ago. Um, I remember seeing a thing about that then where it was like put out specifically as military recruitment, as a military recruitment mechanism to get the kids younger and younger. It was like, wow, you did really good in Call of Duty. Would you like to do this for real? Not joking. That was actually, they did that. I knew a lot of kids that were junior ROTC in middle school and high school. Some didn't know what they were getting into. Others were excited to kill people because it'll be, quote, just like Call of Duty or Battlefield. Disgusting. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not all one speed. Libertarian solution is privatizing war. Yeah, absolutely. So the, quote, ANCAPs, the, quote, anarcho-capitalists, people who, you know, um, as in that landlord post before, they get confused about the nature of the state in relation to actually enabling them to be capitalists. They focus on the 3 to 5% of things that the state doesn't let them do as capitalists as like some need to abolish the state. Libertarians, though, don't actually want to abolish the state. They just want to privatize it. That's not the same as abolition. You're keeping the same functions. You're just basically changing the way that it is paid for and funded. But, yeah, they want to privatize the state, not abolish it. If you hold them to an answer, that's what you get. So, yeah, that's worse than what we even have now. Absolutely. What we have now is bad. They would make it even worse by privatizing it. You'd have less accountability. The profit motive is just going to make it even worse. I mean, the direct profit motive. Obviously, the overall point is to hold up the rulership of capital over society. And that's, you know, obviously for the purposes of profit. But when you put the profit directly into the military, that makes it that much worse. Yeah, you may not want to put all your personal information into the AI. Uh, I was kind of kind of kidding about having ChatGPT make you a resume. There's plenty of like sample resumes online. Just find one you like. I mean, there's like I think entire blogs that like make their whole living like coaching people on resumes. So there should be plenty of resources. Do you think that as the housing crisis worsens, we'll see an increase in laws and penalties criminalizing homelessness? Seems like a good way to increase their free prison labor pool. Yeah, that's already happening. They um, outlaw camping. I mean, we covered this in, a, in an earlier live stream a while ago. They, in various cities, will outlaw um, cohabitation over a certain number of people. They will outlaw camping in public spaces. Uh, I don't know if it's specifically to increase the free prison labor pool, I'm not sure that that's specifically why, uh, but they, at, at a minimum, want to have a housing crisis that drives prices way, way up without seeing any of the consequences of the housing crisis that they're creating. So, I mean, this is like, we did a, we did a video on the housing crisis featuring Michael Schellenberger right-winger in California who previously had made a name by saying that we can, you know, technology our way out of global warming. 
we can't. Um, he has now become an anti-homelessness advocate and wants to basically lock all the homeless people in California up into, like, uh, you know, mental asylums and things like that. So, um, it's basically, the impulse is, hey, I'm a rich person, I paid a million dollars for my property that has a certain view, and there's homeless people that I can see on my way to Whole Foods, and I don't like that. Let's lock them up. That's, like, pretty much where it's coming from. Libertarian Party are like sovereign citizens, question mark. Uh, there is overlap. Um, sovereign citizens might be more likely to join the Constitution Party, but very close. I mean, the Libertarian Party and the Constitution Party, Constitution Party is smaller, a little more extreme, though. Um, so, yeah, for people not familiar with the sovereign citizen phenomenon, these are people who... It's hard to, I mean, it's not hard to explain. It's hard to explain in a way where you can digest the information without just getting caught up in the shock of, like, people People do this. But it's very strange. Um, I don't even know where to begin. They have all these complex legal theories about how the government actually has control over you and it's like laws only apply to you because you've submitted to their authority by like signing your name on your social security card or like various other entry points to becoming a subject of the United States government. And that if you don't do any of these things or rescind all of these things, then you can again become a quote, sovereign citizen who is not subject to US government jurisdiction. There's just one problem with this. The U.S. government, well, the basic problem is it's not true. Um, you can't just be like, aha, I, um, you know, I, I cut up my social security card or whatever. You have no jurisdiction over me. They, this has, to my knowledge, never worked in court. Also, okay, great, you're a sovereign citizen. You are, you know, the republic of you. You also have no fucking resources. So you need to engage in commercial activity with other people. Okay, well, that's actually what they would say is the solution. You just need to, like, as a sovereign individual, contract with other people to, like, get your needs met and this and that. It's, you know, capitalism is voluntary. Uh, you know, employment is actually a voluntary arrangement with extra steps, pretty much. So, yeah, there's definitely overlap between the sovereign citizens. Not every libertarian is a sovereign citizen, but the sovereign citizens tend to think like libertarians. Libertarianism is a more mainstream version of that. Again, I think in the Constitution Party, you'll find more of the sovereign citizen sort of extreme types. It's wild. You can read, let me find, I think I remember one. Back in the 2000s, I did a lot of... Um, you know, reading of the internet of like, there was a ton of libertarian stuff on the internet in the 2000s, the, the old internet. But there's like entire guides um, that you can find online to the process of like severing your, oh, I found it. Wait, I gotta go back. There's like guides. You can even pay people to like coach you through the process, not a grift at all. Oh, no, I didn't find it. Oh, well. Um, 
wild stuff. I mean, yeah. So anyway, they sure give me sovereign citizen vibes. Uh, I'd say the sovereign citizen movement is like the ultra-libertarian part of their movement. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're the more extreme wing. <laughs> Losertarians. Sometimes, you know, a single word really can just encompass the whole sentiment. Losertarians. I like it a lot. If you want to see those criminal libertarian types, watch Tiger King. One of those guys actually ran against Trump. Again, they seem to at least have a little more imagination. They're, they're more like characters. But yeah, you can't run a society on that. I mean, why can't you just accept that, okay, you're an outlaw. You want to live like an outlaw lifestyle? Fine. But you think you're going to like convince the entire rest of society to just accommodate you? What? The damn toaster guy was Daryl Perry. Oh, okay. Not, not an important name, but thank you for knowing that. <laughs> Your Honor, I <laughs> Your Honor, I will be represented by Bonsai Buddy. <laughs> oh my god. We're living in some crazy times. Radical Recruiters sounds like the early 2000s. Reminds me of the urban legend of the arcade game Polybius. Now, I, I like me a good arcade game. I've never heard of Polybius. What is this? Looking it up now. urban legend a fictitious 1981 arcade game that is part of an urban legend the legend describes the game as part of a government-run crowdsourced psychology experiment based in portland oregon gameplay supposedly produced intense psychoactive and addictive effects in the player so it's like videodrome basically um, these few publicly staged arcade machines were said to have been visited periodically by men in black for the purpose of data mining the machines and analyzing the effect. So it's Videodrome. That's funny. And Videodrome before Videodrome. I wonder if uh, that partly inspired the movie, actually. It's called Rotsy because it rots your cranium. There you go. Also rhymes with another acronym. Can anyone guess what I'm thinking of? Maybe not acronym, but abbreviation. Online multiplayer gaming existing for 20 plus years was a bit of a mental flashbang. Time goes by quick. Tiger King is peak American culture. I think with the Western left being so uneducated on matters of class and socialism, they would benefit from education because when more people are educated on these matters, reactionaries like MAGA communists, or really MAGA anything, really just fascists, have less power. Hence why the Western media spends so much on anti-communism. Yeah, I mean, communism is the last thing they want you to last thing they actually want you to find out about. It just answers so many questions that I had. And you know, I had previously studied like the labor movement and other kind of domestic things, and which is great, it gives you a certain amount of answers when you put in the international picture of communism. And for me, I love reading the Lenin stuff especially not exclusively, but I especially love the Lenin stuff because it's like every debate, argument, discussion you've ever had with someone who considers themselves left, it already happened 
over a hundred years ago. Like, there's just no need to keep rehashing these arguments. We can just learn from history and move on. First, 1A auditors, First Amendment auditors are either Libertarian or Constitution Party members. Yeah, the sovereign citizens operate only under common law. Lamau. Um, yeah, man, it's I'm getting flashbacks to those, like, just when the internet was full of such weird fucking stuff, and it was like things that were, it was so easy to find such weird things on the internet like that. Yeah, this this whole thing about maritime law versus common law, and when you go into a U.S. courtroom, like, what flag they're using, and after the Civil War, they started using, like, admiralty law or some fucking thing, and it's, like, all about how if you don't sign your name in certain places, or you don't use your name in all capital letters with the middle initial with no period after it, it's, like, that's how they get you. <laughs> Just fucking, okay, let me know when that works out. So we're just all gonna, like, retreat into common law, which, by the way, common law was not a popular thing, but... I love watching sovereign citizens getting pissed at cops. It's so funny. It is one of these things where it's like... It's a cop, so obviously you're not rooting for the cop. But it's also this person that is using, like, the least fucking effective way of, like, not being arrested that has, like, ever been devised. So, just... Oh, man. You know, it's right-wingers versus right-wingers. But, yeah, it's become a thing now where there's, like, cringe videos made of it. I had a guy try to convince me next time the cops stopped me to tell them that I was a, quote... <laughs> this is exactly it. The, to tell them that I was a, quote, free man on the land. I told them I am a person of color, so that won't work. I am a free man on the land. They literally think you can use these, like, magic phrases, like, open sesame, and the cops just suddenly, like, melt into a puddle, and you're just free to go, like, about your day. It just doesn't work. It does not work. But, yeah, they do tend to get, like, uh, the cops, like, tolerate them. I mean, it's all, like, conservative white guys. Um... So, you know, the cops are like, anybody else would get ripped from their car. Exactly. My college poli-sci program is dominated by libertarians. The Freedom Fund funds our program here. So many brain-dead takes. There's also a lot of unironic neocons as well in my classes. Oh boy. Um, this is what it's like. This is what it's like living in the U.S. and having any social awareness, class consciousness. It's like you're surrounded by fucking just zombies. It's really pretty straining. Uh, my heart goes out to you. I asked AI which were the greatest injustices that ever happened in the world. Results, one, Holocaust, two, African slavery, three, American genocide, four, Rwandan genocide, five, apartheid. No Holodomor mentioned in the top five. Even AI doesn't recognize it. Yeah, um, not a bad list there, actually. Um, yeah. Again, back to the person that's like, oh, you're making Nazism forbidden. They committed the fucking, like, biggest genocide. Anyway. It's so funny that there are online courses by these nutjobs on how to dodge taxes with their common law bullshit, and people who try this shit have never 
gotten away with tax evasion. What's the guy's name? Larkin Rose. Look up Larkin Rose. Absolutely, it does not work. So they have all these like legal theories and they quote experiment with them and every experiment is a failure. So whatever. You know, the social contract is not this formal thing that exists because you signed a social security card or like whatever. There's even a scene in The Simpsons where Bart walks by a Polybius machine. That's interesting. I've never seen that. There were also some sovereign citizens who believed that Trump will be the 17th president. Yeah, they have all these like whack theories of like, you know, the U.S. government... Uh, the Congress adjourned, I don't know, like, talk about random trivia. The Congress adjourned before the Civil War in 1864, what is it, sine die, without day. So, like, they adjourned without a specific day to readjourn, and it never properly came back together. Like, you can see elements of neo-Confederacy in this as well. And that, like, the uh, post-Civil War government is, like, illegitimate. There's all these kinds of things, like, subtly woven into it. <laughs> Rather than doing the sovereign citizen thing, you're better off just putting a thin blue line magnet on your bumper if you don't want to be pulled over. I once saw someone on Twitter say, to paraphrase, being a non-evil American is like waking up as a stormtrooper. I happen to agree. Yeah, it's a factory of fascism. I remember, you know, when I was like, uh, you know, in late high school and starting to realize, I was like, hey, you know, I was learning about like what fascism was and some of the characteristics of fascism. I was like, hey, a lot of this applies to our society and especially the more conservative aspects. And everyone I said this to, adults, were just like, no, 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 never, never, never. The U.S. would never be fascist. And I'm like... Yeah, I kind of think it is, and I never really shook that, and here we are, talking on this stream today. There is a Lauren Southern versus Larkin Rose debate. Wow, cursed indeed. Everybody in America basically, basically starts out as right-wing by default. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, unless your parents, like, start raising you as a communist, like, odds are you're going to be exposed to way more right-wing ideas than anything else. It takes a lot of work to come out of that. You know, we're trying to make it easier and channels like this and really spread the propaganda because we need to counter all of the right-wing messaging. We need, to, we need to make it more possible, easier for people to encounter anti-fascist messaging. So yeah, absolutely. All right, we're caught up, and I'll extend that to most Western countries. We are caught up with the chat again. Let's get into the next thing. These are two articles that were sent in by a patron, actually. So, two stories about the Nevada Democrats and DSA. So, let's read. They're pretty short. Basically, this was sent saying, um, so I guess the Nevada DSA got disgusted enough with the Nevada Democrats that they didn't do any endorsement. And you know what? Good. Because DSA, you know, it is what it is, is the largest vaguely left. And in some time, you know, some places, sometimes it depends on the branch, sometimes reasonably left uh, organization in an area doing any kind of, you know, again, 
ballot initiatives, labor union support, any kind of serving as a hub for trying to rebuild the left in an area. Um, one of the major, major flaws with DSA is its close proximity to and opportunism with the Democratic Party. So seeing DSA uh, or a DSA chapter distance itself from the Democrats and learn some of the lessons, that's a good thing because, um, you know, it's what we've got in some areas as far as the left is concerned. And, you know, we exist here in space time, like history, the clock is ticking. We have to do what we can. And if that's the best you've got going in your area, it's better than nothing. Horribly flawed and compromised, but still better than absolutely nothing. And seeing them learn the lesson of, hey, the Democratic Party is just going to fuck us over and we should go independent of them. That's a good thing to learn. So anyway, this is from the Nevada Independent. Monroe Moreno elected Nevada Dems chair, ousts Democratic Socialist incumbent. So there's a picture there of Assemblywoman Danielle Monroe Moreno speaking during the Nevada State Democratic Party leadership elections in Carson City. And this is from March, so a couple months ago, three months ago almost. Assemblywoman Danielle Monroe Moreno from uh, D. Las Vegas was elected chair of the Nevada State Democratic Party Saturday, ousting incumbent chair Judith Whitmer in a vote of 314 to 99, a rebuke of Whitmer's leadership ahead of key Senate and presidential races in 2024. So they ousted the left-leaning, you know, DSA Democrat and got in more of a run-of-the-mill Democrat. Monroe Moreno led a self-styled unity slate of candidates, touting a bid to reform the party's inner workings following a split between the Whitmer-controlled state party and a separate group, Nevada Democratic Victory, in 2021. All of the candidates for party office on Monroe Moreno's unity slate won on Saturday over a competing slate of candidates led by Whitmer. Speaking to reporters after her victory, Monroe Moreno said that, quote, 2024 is far too important. Say the line, Dems, most important election of our lifetime. Yay. And the division within our party had had to come to an end. In other words, we had to stifle progressive dissent. Quote, it wasn't going to do anyone any good. She said, the 2022 election cycle was difficult. We won a lot of seats, but we did it with division, and we can't continue to do that. So I ran so we can bring the family. The Oh, that's so creepy. I don't like that at all. The Democratic family back together. All right, just moving on. I was going to say something about the family metaphor, but I just can't even bring myself to go there. After Whitmer and a group of Democratic Socialists were elected to party leadership positions, chair, party staffers, and consultants, many affiliated with the Reed machine for former Senator Harry Reed, quit the party en masse. So they would, like, they're for capitalism, they're for business as usual. They quit the party because progressives got elected. Staffers also transferred a significant amount of party funds to a new organization, Nevada Democratic Victory, housed within the Washoe County Democratic Party, in a bid to work directly with major campaigns without the involvement of the state party. So some of them quit. They denied them of funds. They funneled the funds into this other organization and basically just set up shop over there 
trying to deny the progressives from political power or funding. This is what they did, and it was immediate and severe and drastic. Whitmer has long criticized the move, that's the progressive, calling NDV a shadow group and criticizing special interests and dark money in democratic politics. She has also defended her tenure, touting her role in bumping Nevada up to second on the presidential nominating calendar, though not first in the nation, after President Joe Biden sidelined Nevada's bid in favor of South Carolina. So, doing the most conservative states first, anyway, this was like a whole thing back in the, um, you know, like uh, in the in the primaries, um, you need to focus on the states that are actually more swing states. Like if you prioritize in the Democratic primary, um, states that Democrats always lose in the general, then it's just fucking irrelevant and you're clearly doing it just to um, stack the race in favor of more conservative candidates. Anyway, so so over the Democratic Party, uh, exactly because of, uh, well, not just because of bullshit like this, but it, it uh, didn't endear anyone to the party, let's put it that way. There's Whitmer. But elected Democrats have sharply criticized the party under Whitmer, including the removal of access to a key voter information database, a charge that Whitmer has denied, her endorsement of a challenger to Sisolak's appointed lieutenant governor in the 2022 primary and six-figure party contracts she awarded to personal allies. No details on that. Monroe Moreno told the Nevada Independent last month that the, quote, vast majority of on-the-ground efforts that led to Democratic victories, quote, did not come from the state party. So they're just doing everything to just deny them of power and influence and reputation, and it's immediate and severe. Ahead of Saturday's election, Monroe Moreno's unity slate received a wave of endorsement from labor groups, including a rare direct endorsement from the powerful Culinary Workers Union, as well as a host of current and former elected Democrats. Not a great surprise in that latter part. Though Whitmer did earn the support of the Stonewall Democrats and several county party leaders in rural Nevada, she also lost the support of the Las Vegas Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, which announced that it would not endorse any candidate and called the Democratic Party a, quote, dead end. Good. That's some amount of progress. We're going to read their statement right after this. The weeks leading up to the election were otherwise fraught, as some Democrats accused Whitmer of improperly purging more than 200 members from the state central committee ahead of the election. Whitmer denied the claims, alleging that the removals came as a routine cleanup based on mandatory meeting attendance. However, the incident, in addition to another letter raising concerns over the vote process in January, was one of several factors that led to the involvement of the Democratic National Committee which ran the online email-based infrastructure for Saturday's election. So they were so trying to stack charges against Whitmer. Um, I mean, they got the DNC involved to try to usurp the state party's power because progressives were at the wheel. This is what happens when you try to work within the Democratic Party. They have a million tools to shut you down. As I always say, it's a space not suitable for organizing for class struggle and proletarian, you know, the development of proletarian ideology to advance the class struggle for the proletariat. It's a space completely dominated by bourgeois interests and bourgeois ideology. And if you try to gain any ground within their party, this is what they do. 
Anyway, the election came sandwiched in the middle of a more than three and a half hour central committee meeting at Carson City's church turned theater brewery art center, including a voting period that was extended three times in order to account for the number of people calling for assistance with the online ballot process. With winds whipping and steady snowfall blanketing parked cars outside, members inside the hall grew visibly anxious for news of results as the meeting reports dragged on, and briefly erupted when Whitmer prematurely adjourned the meeting before results were announced, but more than an hour after voting had closed. Well, okay, so she wasn't interfering with the election. They just, uh, they had extended the thing three times, and they were going to announce the votes later. Uh, the meeting continued, at which point Whitmer and Mar Monroe Moreno were taken out of the room to learn the results. Only after this process did the party's election chair, Sandra Cosgrove, announce the full results for every candidate through a Zoom call projected on stage. Last page. In her last remarks during her chair's report, Whitmer defended her tenure to the in-person crowd, touting efforts at rural engagement and down-ballot campaign work, even despite being shut out of coordinated campaign efforts by the major campaigns. Ahead of 2024, concerns remain within the party over both the narrow margin of 2022 victories, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto won re-election by less than a percent, while Governor Steve Sisolak lost his race by 1.5 percentage points, and a dwindling voter advantage in the once reliable Democratic stronghold of Clark County. So the party's in decline with the voter base, and they're doing all that they can to shut out the progressives. Why we will never advocate working within this party. It is an imperialist party owned by the 1%. So let's see, did DSA come to the same conclusions? This is the Las Vegas DSA statement on Nevada State Democratic Party election from February 13. So this is where they declined in advance of the election, about two weeks in advance of the election to uh, do an endorsement. As the election for a new Nevada State Democratic Party chair approaches, the Las Vegas chapter of DSA feels compelled to state publicly that the chapter has not endorsed any candidate. We also want to shed light on what the admittedly disappointing relationship between the Las Vegas DSA and the NSDP has been like for the last two years. After the clean sweep election of a slate of Las Vegas DSA members into party leadership in 2021 on the progressive slate, a media storm ensued, with outlets across the country lamenting or cheering the rise of socialism within a state party structure, or at least social democracy. But anyway, the slate, which spun out of the Nevada for Bernie infrastructure, which had strong connections with DSA, was indeed largely elected by DSA members who also deliberately held positions on the state central committee and who organized as the Nevada Dems Caucus called Left Caucus, which then acquired new progressive members outside of DSA as well. After the progressive slate won the election, it was discovered that the vestiges of the famed Reed machine, who held these positions prior, had seen the writing on the wall and, legally, though clearly unethically, flipped a kill switch that effectively gutted the party infrastructure, transferring hundreds of thousands of dollars out of the party coffers, giving the entire staff parachutes that allowed them to quit en masse, and leaving countless bills unpaid and files unorganized. So that was what they talked about in the other article, just like, oh, you elected progressives? Pfft, you know, the bomb goes off. Enjoy your new office. 
Ready to be mobilized, we awaited instructions. The instructions never came, nor indeed did any real communication. We openly acknowledge our part in allowing the relationship to fall flat. We deferred to the people who'd actually won these offices, naively expecting them to think of us as partners in organization and mobilization. After the election, Left Caucus also fell off in attendance and capacity, as is so often the case when a big campaign ends, all but a few major players scattered when a new project didn't pre present itself. Initially, despite our lack of communication, we watched with pride while the Nevada Dems made some bold statements, one arguing for Palestinian rights that drew the national ire of politicians and pundits, one demanding clemency for indigenous pr political prisoner Leonard Peltier, and more. Still, the principled statements were just statements. We saw no significant organization towards these positions, no push on legislators themselves, and no call to action for community members who wanted to see these political viewpoints moving more than just reactionary newsmen to action. As the term went on, we saw the ostensibly progressive coalition move more and more to the center, making administrative and political choices that were more in line with the corporatists that we pledged to beat than the grassroots organizers who pushed the initial victory. As the ghost of the Harry Reid machine played dirty trick after dirty trick, the ostensibly progressive leadership oscillated between playing respectability politics and making compromises to the center. Decisions like ending their support for our holiday solidarity food distribution, an annual event that both feeds the community and once gave us a rallying point for the coalition that would elect the slate in the first place, were unfortunate, though not surprising, given the corporate media backlash that came from their promotion of the event the year before. As socialists, we do not think the rightward shift is a moral failing of leadership. We have seen the same thing happen over and over when socialists enter Democratic Party politics. The corrupt, corporate-fueled machine and its aide-de-camp, the mainstream media, is a moderating force even for the proudest leftists. Even when leadership attempted strong reforms, for example, leadership's national push for a formalized removal of dark money from Democratic primary races via a DNC resolution, there was no communication, no ask of us as DSA members to mobilize our comrades around the country to lobby their local party officials. We learned about this empirically good, if futile, policy push only through the mainstream media like everyone else. The party, however, took no stance when every single one of our elected state representatives proudly voted to condemn, quote, the horrors of socialism. If you remember, that was a thing that happened in the Democratic Party a while back. I think a hundred of them voted against, everyone else voted for, and indeed continued to do free messaging for the handful of so-called progressive representatives who insisted that voting against socialism was necessary for passing a progressive agenda. So useful to the left here. This is our lesson, and we hope socialists everywhere will pay close attention. The Democratic Party is a dead end. It is a party in name only. Truly, it is simply a tangled web of dark money and mega donors, cynical consultants, and lapdog politicians. The establishment is Lucy with the football. No matter how effectively socialists organize for power, the establishment will simply pull the football away using dirtier and dirtier tricks. Enough falling for the tricks, and even the most dedicated socialists can't help but give up and play the ugly game. We don't want milquetoast progressive reformist reforms. We want socialism. We won't get it by playing the DNC's games, and we won't get it by being a mildly obnoxious thorn in their side either. 
Our task is to out-organize them entirely and not merely within the confines of the voting booth. That is correct. Now re-election approaches. The former progressive slate's stances do not differ significantly or materially from their opponents, nor do their general tactics. We would note that it is unfortunate that the party chair is receiving accusations of misdeeds related to the SCC membership list. We believe that it is more likely that the establishment Democrats do not understand their own processes, which made it easy for us to win elections in 2021. That said, this kind of rules lawyering and parliamentary sleight of hand makes it very difficult for regular working class people to engage with politics at this level, which has always been seen as a net positive by the ruling elite. We cannot offer this slate our organizational support, either on paper or through organized action, despite the fact that some of the slate members continue to be DSA members. Very good. So, you know, this is um, bringing up the question of standards for being DSA members, consequences for violating socialist principles, and so on. We also will not be supporting the election of a lifelong corrections officer or the reinstatement of the explicitly corrupt Reed machine. As socialists and abolitionists, we believe in something better, a politics of hope, where communities build themselves up, invest in their own democracy, and demand accountability and transparency from their community leaders, elected and unelected. We will prepare for a future where we can belong to a true workers' party, one which is unapologetically anti-capitalist. We believe in socialism, and that is the only fight we'll be investing in. Hey, that was pretty good. And that's exactly the kind of realization you want more and more socialists to come to in the United States. You become more class conscious, more aware of the political system, more aware of how the Democratic Party works. You realize you're not going to totally transform the Democratic Party or whatever bullshit Bernie said to you. It's not going to happen. You have to organize independently. Whether you win that election or not, you have organized. And you were organized before the election. The election happens. You're still organized. It's about organizing. And if you try to organize within the Democratic Party, you don't control your own organization. So you got to pull out of that, be independent, and so on. Anyway, that, that is that. Um, people still get confused about what I've said about the Green Party. And for the like umpteenth time, let me say it again. Many people realize, they get involved in left politics, they realize you can't reform the Democratic Party then they just drop out and do nothing at all. It would be better for those people to at least join the Green Party, which is not a Marxist party, although there are Marxists in it. It's not a Marxist party. Do I think it's going to go the distance to the revolution? No. Do I think that, you know, does its right wing have a lot of contrarian libertarian types? Yes. Like, there's definitely massive problems with the Green Party. That said, if all of the people who had at one point tried to reform the Democratic Party, realized it didn't work, and then just simply dropped out of political life altogether, at least had joined the Greens instead, I think it would have been a better stepping stone for becoming more politically useful. You're going to be able to do more local organizing in an independent capacity that's not controlled by the vagaries of the 1% interests that control the Democratic Party. You will at least have your own organization and you'll be able to do more useful things. And as you discover the problems with that kind of like non-democratic centralism, uh, non-democratic centralism organized, you know, party formation, then that's experience that can help you see the truth of 
needing to find other forms of organization as well. But the amount of people who just, and this is, I don't know if it's specific to the U.S. or what, but it's definitely happening in the U.S. People like, try the Democrats, then give up. For fuck's sake, stay in, keep keep fighting. Um, if everybody had, even half the people had gotten organized somewhere else, we would have such a better left at this point. And would it be explicitly communist? No. But you'd have more of a grassroots mass movement active and doing things that when there are moments of uprising and so on, you're not in that Democratic Party uh, prison trap and you're not completely unorganized either. So I think that there are probably multiple steps along the road to people, you know, coming to full class consciousness. But um, anyway, DSA Las Vegas has at least made the realization that this is a split that needs to occur and you'll love to see it. All right, let's go back into the chat for a minute. I do have one more thing for this stream, but let's chat it up. Still got 40 people here in the uh, stream. It took a school shooting and me almost dying from that to become a communist in the few years following. Yeah, this is the environment we're living in. I'm glad you lived, by the way. DSA is such a mixed bag, but because of its structure, you can infiltrate it and organize, so I'm neutral on it. It really varies wildly from uh, branch to branch. <laughs> Emancipate from the Democratic family, for sure. Back in 2021, my DSA liberal self was so excited for Judith Whitmer. I wanted to do something similar in my state. This was before I learned how much of a waste of time the Democratic Party is. That's what I'm saying is like a lot of people will figure that out and then just like drop out and you never hear from them again. No, we need to stay engaged. When we organize on compromise and the needs of the more moderate small capitalist interests, we change the nature of our revolution. Hence why the Democrats demand it, because for Democrats, we must draw the left. Hence why Dems exist. I mean, they work hand in glove with the Republicans on every major project of U.S. imperialism the domestic police surveillance austerity state. Um, it's good cop, bad cop. They're both there for the same basic purpose, upholding U.S. imperialism, and again, domestically, the capitalist police state. So, yeah, I mean, they're not out to stop fascism. They're more out to stop the left from stopping fascism. I was taking all the money, not theft or something. Well, I think that they legally did it by like funneling it into, you know, according to the party rules into some other committee or something. But, um, yeah, they knew what they were doing. The DSA takeover of the Nevada Dems is analogous to a left-leaning government being voted into power in a capitalist country. The oligarchs water you down into a comprador regime. Same reason wage theft isn't charged. The people who it's done to... Yeah, so I, I don't know if this progressive slate um, tried to fight them on the removal of the funds. I don't know. This is why the focus on electoral representation is a mistake. It's a latter step once labor is organized to just prove that you can't do anything in the government. Yeah, I get what you're saying. It's people who without the mass movement present are trying to like build socialism by just electing progressives to the government that's really not going to work that way 
I mean, yes, you want to try to change conditions. Like, for example, it's incredibly difficult legally to form a labor union in the U.S. We've covered that many times. The laws are dramatically skewed um, towards employers' benefit and against workers. Um, so if you're able to change those laws, it would make it a lot easier to form labor unions and to get that kind of going. So you would want to do that if you can. But that's just, I mean, anybody who's been paying the slightest attention to the way the Democrats hang on to power and block the left, I mean, can tell you that that's not really going to happen. We do need to focus on the mass movement. Um, and there, there's a ton of local work that can be done, absolutely. We do have the internet also for the time being to publicize those efforts. You know, and I, I thank the person who sent this in. I love to promote this kind of thing because there is a lot of stuff going on at the state and local level we're just not hearing about, and we do need to amplify it. I forget who said this, so forgive me, but from this DSA story uh, here, a quote on the lesson a leftist should learn, America is a one-party state, but with typical American extravagance, it has two of them. Yeah, absolutely. Again, good cop, bad cop. They're both cops for the same purpose, busting you, uh, but they have different styles. Have I ever read Inver Hoja's criticism on Che Guevara after Che's death? Um, so one of the few Hoja audiobooks, there will be more in the future, as we were discussing earlier, that we have on the channel is, what is it, The Fist of Marxist-Leninist Must Also Smash Left Adventurism? Something to that effect. Where he kind of criticized Che, I don't know if he criticized Che on other occasions as well, but he criticized Che Guevara for... I guess the kind of guerrilla warfare that Che was um, going around and teaching uh, in, in other countries, I guess Hoja considered a form of adventurism and even the Cuban revolutionaries is kind of being too adventurous in that it was um, like a separate group of military commando revolutionaries versus like being deeply rooted in a militia movement directly in the masses. So I think that those were the natures of the criticism. But um, yeah, it's in that the Fist of the Marxist-Leninist Must Also Smash audiobook um, where he, he talks about some of that. But again, I don't know if there's more. All right, we're caught up with the chat. Let's get into our last articles for today's stream. And yeah, what did I call them? Here we go. Which one should I do first? I'll do the short one first. I'll do the short one first. So this, um, for anyone who's interested in this, I can put a link in the description. I believe these folks have a Discord server going. As you know, we do a lot of COVID-19 content on this channel. SARS coronavirus 2 is a very serious illness that can cause damage in every major organ system of your body that can last indefinitely for years for many months um, it's a severely bad thing so some people socialists doing some organizing around this issue let's read this first document of two is called pandemic organizing structure for constructive struggle and i believe that this is based in part on um, completely blanking on the name now constructive criticism okay purpose Intra-organizational struggle is intended to strengthen the organization, its solidarity, its discipline, and its reputation, and to improve the progress of its work. Intra-organizational struggle 
is intended between different ideologies and principles. It is not interpersonal struggle or conflict. Its essence is constructive criticism over ideas and principles with minimal antagonism toward one another. Discussion and argument is conducted in a mutually respectful way with sincere, unapologetic, and positive educational attitudes. Its goal is achieving unity at its conclusion. So that's a really key sentence. Its goal is achieving unity at its conclusion. The goal is not destroying with facts and logic. It's achieving unity at the conclusion of this discussion and argument, which is conducted in a mutually respectful way with sincere, unapologetic, and positive educational attitudes. This is the exact opposite of the debate bro culture, which I said before, you really have to pay me to watch. Um, I'm not, not really even sure that there is a dollar amount because it's just a giant waste of time. The goal is achieving unity, being respectful, and everybody coming out of it learning something. Okay. Intra-organizational struggle is not extra-organizational struggle. So remember, intra is within, extra is outside. The methods employed inside the organization should not be mixed up with those applied outside of it. A clear line must be drawn between struggles waged inside the organization and struggles waged outside. Intra-organizational struggle allows us to separate ideas which serve our oppressors from ideas which serve the oppressed. Awareness is not enough. Struggle is requisite. It is self-defeating to require perfecting one's worldview before joining the struggle or without struggle to learn from, uh, sorry, or without struggle to learn from, and without comrades to learn with and through via unity. Everyone will not be equally advanced when they join the struggle, so we must have productive ways to educate and correct each other. Discovering incorrect ideas inside ourselves and this organization are not personal failings as long as we maintain the capacity to grow together. We all have the power to change society by breaking the hold of capitalist ideology. The causes and solutions to permanently end all oppression are systemic and not individual. They are objective and not subjective. We are not inescapably bound to innate bias and oppressive ideas. Intra-organizational struggle is necessary to avoid organizational fizzle, organizational splits, and organizational chaos. A culture of struggle must be cultivated and encouraged. Many dare not speak up or criticize and promote superficial peace and unity until the contradictions can no longer be concealed, and when the situation becomes serious or mistakes are exposed, they begin to engage in wild criticism and struggle, instigating instinctive reaction, fight or flight, freeze, appease, dissociate. So in other words, avoiding the struggle, avoiding the conflict until it's at a breaking point results in breaking. So it's about having processes of struggle, criticism, so that the organization can grow and change without snapping or dying. How to engage in constructive intra-organizational struggle. Step one, define your shared values or principles and why you're working together, points of unity. Intra-organizational struggle can only commence once areas or principles of agreement are defined. Once a clear basis of unity is established, it provides a reference point for the depth of struggle. A loose coalition focused on a single issue doesn't need to achieve the same level of agreement as a highly disciplined revolutionary cadre. Step two, get together to struggle, not to investigate what happened. Meetings are for discussion, decisions, and planning, whereas action, investigation, and study are performed outside of meetings. 
In meetings for intra-organizational struggle, efforts should be made to avoid turning a meeting into a courtroom. The goal of a meeting for intra-organizational struggle is to constructively educate everyone involved. This is not stated lightly. It is no easy matter to achieve unity or to solve problems ideologically and on the basis of principles. This can only be achieved through shared struggle in a space of trust and solidarity with the goal of mutual education. Step three, begin with good intentions. Unity originates in solidarity. Intra-organizational struggle must begin with a desire for unity by all. Inside the organization, we must struggle from an attitude of mutual respect, and we must not stop trying to educate rather than antagonize. Priorities and actions for all members left of the United Statesian capitalist parties will be negligibly different as observed by the mainstream. Our goals may diverge on a long enough timeline, but negligibly so within the space of years due to the present state of the left in the imperial core. In other words, you know, you might be able to tell the difference between a Maoist and a Hojist. The average person can't. And in the short term, we all kind of want most of the same things on the longer term you know we might do things differently but that's not going to mean much to sort of the average person on the outside of this maximum intensity should be engaged in persuasion and argument over principles and ideas but not over the form of the organization and the form of the process of struggle step four struggle against ideas not people Intra-organizational struggle must be distinguished from interpersonal struggle. The focus of criticism is the relationship of mistakes and errors to our organizational principles and points of unity. We should not begin by inquiring as to who's responsible for mistakes and errors. It is in the process of organizational action that we, our organization, and our society are changed. Our goal is uniting to combat oppression together. It is not our policy to deal blows at our members. For particularly egregious comrades who frequently violate decisions, principles, and ethics, other actions separate from inter-organizational struggle should be initiated. In other words, those violations trigger other things beyond this process, which is not meant to handle that. Step five, work to minimize potential objectification or dehumanization. In virtual spaces, it is easier than in person to objectify each other and to manifest straw men, which escalates anger. It is always worth considering an audio or video meeting in order to combat this objectification. I, this is so very, very true. And you know, it's one thing when you lose a follower online over some online you know, text misunderstanding or argument that you got into. It's another thing to watch an organization that you poured months, maybe years of your life, money, you know, everything else, belief into, watch that get blown up over some online disagreements. Absolutely fucking just terrible. Step six, communicate clearly and briefly during struggle. The method of organizational struggle should proceed as follows. For both the givers and receivers of criticism, one, separate subjective opinions from objective facts stating concrete observations rather than abstract judgments in order to get clear on a concrete description of the problem. Two, clarify the subjective part of the criticism being levied. Verbalize feelings involved to avoid others misreading one's emotions, to identify one's own end of the struggle, and to separate the person in error, uh, and to separate the person in error from the principles in error. Three, State directly who or what should do something, concretely, and what it is desired that they do. And stress what is desired, 
rather than what is not desired. 4. Explain the purpose of the criticism or desired change. In response to all statements, 5. Paraphrasing back to the speaker cannot be done often enough to guarantee understanding and alignment. So this is really key in kind of teaching to or any kind of, you know, good communication is rephrasing back to the person. So you're saying X, Y, Z, trying again, not with the sort of, you know, cop tactic gotcha drama that the debate bros use, but genuinely, do I have what you're saying uh, correctly here? Not trying to twist it, but, you know, it's just such a sick, toxic space, the whole debate thing. This is literally the exact opposite. It's so refreshing to read this. So, in response to all statements, paraphrasing back to the speaker cannot be done often enough to guarantee understanding and alignment. It may take several circles of statements and paraphrasing to achieve this clarity. Patience and a genuine interest in understanding criticism by all involved is necessary. Summary on giving and receiving criticism. When person or group does A, observation, I feel B, emotion, and I want you to do C, action want, because of D, purpose. How to paraphrase, demonstrating active listening. When I or we do A, observation, do you feel B, emotion, and do you want me or us to do C, action want, because of D, purpose. The receiver of criticism must explain their actions or ideas, one, in connection to our organizational principles or basis of unity, and two, with humility, recognizing potential ignorance of both the lived experiences and oppression which may be invisible or foreign to the receiver, and potential ignorance of flaws in their own thinking. So again, contrasting this with the debate bro shit is literally the exact opposite because it's all about not showing weakness and even when you fuck up, trying to make it somebody else's problem and to get the attention off of you and to just catch them in a bigger fuck up so that people forget about your fuck up. It's terrible. It's just troll behavior. Step seven, at an impasse, accept differences, but abide by a vote. A crucial mistake is emphasizing unity at all costs. This will result in blurring the distinction between allies and enemies, working class and ruling class. On questions of ideology or compromise, Oh, sorry. On questions of ideology or principle, if agreement cannot be fully reached after discussion, the matter may be settled by majority decision. After that, the minority who still hold different opinions may reserve their opinions on condition that they absolutely abide by the decision of the majority in respect to organizational matters and in their activities. So they have to uphold the group decision and respect that. Then there's some references. Revolutionary Learning by Mojab and Carpenter. The Miles Horton Reader by Horton and Jacobs, Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Freire, Critical Education Against Global Imperialism, sorry, Critical Education Against Global Capitalism by Allman, Constructive Criticism by Legion, Lyons, OSS Simple Sabotage Field Manual, Section 11. That's funny. All right, so last thing for the stream is a longer one. Uh, that was a very good document, by the way. Pandemic Organizing Points of Unity. So now we're going to look at some points of unity around pandemic organizing. There's the table of contents there. Let's get straight into it. Introduction. Building a collective requires the strong political unity of its members. In the present form of pandemic organizing, 
All members must struggle around these points of unity that express our political line and practice. The following points are not simply abstract, universal principles, but rather points that speak to the specific social situation in which we find ourselves. While the points do not cover all the political questions which this collective must address, they make up the essential principles which we use to form the basis of initial unity. Acceptance of these principles is considered prerequisite for membership. Continued engagement with and deepening of these principles is required to maintain unity between members. This happens through an ongoing process of struggle and debate involving all members as our combined experience grows. The founding of an activist organization represents a transformation in the practice of all collective members. The difference between individual action, e.g. participation in study groups, unplanned mass demonstrations or boycotts, and our collective is this. Through individual action, we were training ourselves as individuals to become politically aware of the direction and tasks of building a movement. We were developing our individual skill sets. Our collective, however, is being founded in order to take concrete action in connection with the independent struggle of existing organized forces and mass movements. We can advance our individual abilities more than we ever could do alone through our collective knowledge and experience. Collective action demands greater discipline and willingness to struggle and a politically united organization. Our tasks, political, theoretical, ideological, and economic, are ranked in importance and carried out as determined by a collective and democratic process. This document does not define our tasks or goals or conduct, but only our points of political unity. When internal conflict arises, return to this document to center the discussion on struggle against ideas, our principles and points of unity rather than struggling against each other. Just want to remind here, there will be a link if you want to get involved with this group. Um, we can help facilitate that. Point one, people before profit. Political leaders and media have declared the end of the pandemic many times since it began. The drive to return workers to offices, tourists to beaches, and patrons to restaurants has been entirely motivated by the desire of the wealthy to hoard more wealth, absolutely. They would annihilate our bodies and our world for a few dollars more. The unstoppable push for profit, the defining feature of capitalism, is the main driving force of the brutal, dehumanizing, and atomizing divisions forced upon us. Racism, ableism, sexism, ageism, queerphobia, nationalism, settler colonialism, and more. The only antidote for the poison spread by these forced divisions is solidarity with all affected. The only way to permanently end these imposed divisions is socialism, the emancipation of all people together through a radical transformation of the economic and social foundation of society. The goal of socialism is the destruction of the structural and economic roots of oppression in all areas of society. In the area of health specifically, Due to structural and economic conditions, it's not possible for all of us to be doctors, virologists, epidemiologists, statisticians, air quality engineers, and safety equipment specialists. We must rely on each other, but grifters abound. Our compass must be oriented towards actions, policies, people, and theory which put the masses before the individual. Solidarity in place of separation and people before profit. Point two, precaution takes precedence. Whenever there is a threat to human health or the biosphere, precautionary measures should be taken even when some cause and effect relationships are not fully established scientifically. 
This approach will always be attacked by those who profit more by not enacting these safeguards, and by those embracing individualism, prioritizing only their own short-sighted desires. The point is threefold. One, an information war is actively being fought against the reality of the current pandemic. Propagandists and grifters are battling to upend both the concept of public health and long-established, previously universally accepted science. I mean truly, ending the concept of public health and upending long-established, previously universally accepted science, that is what we are seeing here from people who absolutely know better. They're consciously throwing science out the window to get back to business as usual and just lying to you. At the start of this pandemic, the short and long-term impacts of a novel coronavirus infection remained unknown because it was a novel virus. Still, the call to mask up was quickly recommended due to a long-established understanding of how coronaviruses are transmitted. Randomized controlled trials were understood as unnecessary to show that respirators work, because this was already established. Respirators rapidly became a polarizing symbol rather than a tool. Although not everywhere. In the United States it did, um, but wearing a mask or respirator more properly uh, wasn't equally politicized in all areas. And hand washing was incorrectly recommended to prevent respiratory transmission of an airborne virus. Like it comes out of your mouth, not your hands. The concept of airborne versus aerosol transmission was reimagined and endlessly rehashed. A distance of six feet instead of 5.99 feet between people was somehow supposed to be preventing catching COVID-19. Two, the SARS coronavirus 2 virus is constantly mutating and our response must be dynamic. A vaccine only strategy cannot succeed in the face of monstrous viral transmissibility. Since almost the beginning, scientists have forecast negative impacts on the immune system and nearly every organ system and warned of the uncertainty of the long-term health implications. Laboratory science is catching up with this forecast. We know there are straightforward measures which can be taken to battle the current pandemic, which have been proven repeatedly. Air cleaning, masking, routine testing and distancing, and paid sick days, science-based quarantine and isolation periods. Government, in other words, science-based, not uh, Delta Airlines CEO-based government subsidies, new technologies and government policies, directives and legislation. It is possible to achieve dynamic COVID zero. Three, the application of the precautionary principle must consider all relevant factors and at minimum perform risk trade-offs that are like for like. In the context of a widespread, highly transmissible, mutating, deadly, and organ-damaging virus, control measures that have been shown to be safe through a history of practice should be used. Examples include the wearing of respirators for long stretches of time during asbestos removal and tuberculosis clinical work, or pharmaceuticals that have been safety or pharmaceuticals that have been safety trialed. These safety measures are reasonable and necessary. We accept that new pharmaceuticals may come with their own unknown risks because of their short time being used, even with relative safety in clinical trials. But with a virus that has worse risks associated with it and evidence pointing to poor long-term outcomes, this trade-off is acceptable depending on the specific product and its known efficacy and safety profile. Since COVID-19 continues to pose a threat, we advocate for vaccination and masking, but recognize the limitations and risks of this position. Point three, one shared struggle for the dignity and equality of all. 
We are organizing a socialist response to the ongoing pandemic and to the active attack decimating public health. We aim to unite the fragmented organizing efforts of other socialist and left groups, bring our pandemic organizing vision and political grounding into broader public consciousness and across national borders. In the U.S., politics is dominated by a right-wing party and a fascist party, neither of which represents the great masses of people in this country. Instead of choosing policies which help and support the great masses of people in this country, both dominant political parties have chosen the path of social murder and eugenics, the policies favored by the wealthy. Both parties have actively worked to damage the credibility of public health and dismantle existing social support systems. Despite this abandonment, the state still has the large-scale capability to make a difference in this pandemic. It is systemic oppressions and a lack of protections that make people vulnerable, forcing people to work unprotected, live in crowded housing or in prisons, shelters, psychiatric facilities or care facilities, etc., People are at risk not because of inborn characteristics, but because of active choices on the part of business and government decision makers made consciously or unconsciously to reinforce and reproduce the system as it exists. This extends across all national boundaries, and so in turn, and so in turn must our solidarity and support. The fight against COVID-19 cannot be won inside the borders of a single country. The examples of China, Cuba, Vietnam, and other nations prove this. Their implementation was constrained by existing laws, policies, and procedures, and the pressure imposed externally by geopolitical forces and internally by the needs of their people. Yet they held out for years despite astounding increases in viral fitness due to uncontrolled transmission elsewhere in the world. There are significant improvements which can be made on their efforts, so we do believe the battle can still be joined and won. Through the cooperation of the people of all nations, we can end the pandemic. Imagine actually ending the pandemic instead of just repeatedly every month renewing the effort to pretend it's over, merely pretend it's over. We stand firmly against all forms of oppression and discrimination in the here and now, against all divisive and discriminatory attitudes. Our organizing begins with the recognition that we are united in struggle against the multiplicity of oppressions rooted in the exploitation of all for the benefit of a few. We center those most vulnerable to emerging threats to public health. We value life and people above domestic capital interests such as profit and above imperial interests such as global conquest and neo-colonial wealth extraction. This disability solidarity begins outside of the individual and the framework of disability justice, footnote in original, guides us. We reject both the individualistic medical model and the self-limiting social model of disability, both of which only serve the interests of capitalism. Finally, it is essential to a socialist politic that our interdependence with all living systems and the land are intertwined with all our shared struggles. Sustainable metabolism with the earth is part and parcel with the emancipation of all people. Point four, SARS-2, COVID-19, is an ongoing pandemic mass disabling event. We share clarity on the reality of the severe acute respiratory syndrome, the novel coronavirus discovered in 2019. COVID denial and gaslighting in the ongoing information war is targeted at maximizing commercial rent, restaurant and retail profit, and other forms of wealth extraction, including every vehicle for the financialization and warehousing of human bodies toward profit, e.g. prisons, detention centers, nursing facilities, and psychiatric institutions. We tolerate no COVID minimization. 
There's a path to living a safe and fulfilling life despite the ongoing pandemic without ignoring that it's occurring. COVID's effects are minimized ad nauseum in public messaging. I guess we'd include nausea as another ongoing effect of the pandemic. These include, but are not limited to, its continually increasing transmissibility, its sharp negative impact on life expectancy. We've covered that in the past. Life expectancy has overall retreated back to 1996 levels, and for some demographics, such as American Indians, it dropped six years. That's dramatic. It's unpredictable, potentially life-changing long-term consequences, and the increase in risk that comes with each subsequent infection. That's right, every time you get reinfected, your odds of everything negative go up. COVID's mode of transmission is also deliberately muddled in public messaging, but in reality, it's straightforward, airborne and aerosol, only fomite in rare cases. Consequently, its mitigations are also straightforward. The U.S. and most other countries are moving in exactly the wrong direction in their response, abandoning prevention and yielding to market forces. When the pandemic first hit, even the U.S. provided many aspects of COVID care freely, and other wealthy nations did much more. Meanwhile, at the grassroots, many people mobilized to help one another. We have seen that we have the power to unite together against profit-driven oppression and social murder. By every means materially justified, we are ethically compelled to fight for the health and safety of ourselves and those we love, for public health and safety, for an end to the global suffering and mass death and disability, which COVID is continuing to inflict. A universally uptaken vaccine, which totally prevents infection, or a top-down, global, comprehensive, multi-layered prevention policy, i.e. dynamic COVID-0, could effectively end this pandemic. Dynamic COVID-0 and a system of public health based in scientific understanding and compassion are achievable, even if they require revolutionary change. COVID-19, aka SARS-2, has unmasked the forces against which any struggle for systemic change will be pitted, whether it is the present struggle for public health under capitalism or for human survival in the face of climate catastrophe. Possibly also artificial intelligence that we've recently been covering, but yeah, definitely COVID and climate change for sure. We must leave no one behind. Proactively, we need clean, proactively, we need clean air for all by all means, respirators, air filters, UV, and vaccines for all. Reactively, we need universal health care more than ever because great masses of people have already been infected, and as infections continue unabated, health crises will grow and multiply. So remember, Biden, back in March 2020, uh, when the pandemic was starting, arguing against Medicare for all, saying, uh, well, look at Italy, they have universal health care, and there's still people in the hospitals. Yeah, dumbass, they're not going broke, though. And all the Medicaid expansions that were part of the COVID emergency, well, now that the, quote, emergency is over, those free health care, reduced cost health care things have all been retracted. So you better hope COVID goes away because um, the you know ability to pay for your medical care has been greatly retracted. Thanks, Biden. Anyway, um, where were we? Yes. Reactively, we need universal health care more than ever because great masses of people have already been infected, and as infections continue unabated, health crises will grow and multiply. We need to address the historic and contemporary abuses inside the medical system against minority and working class people so that all get the care they need. 
which by the way so um african americans in the united states were among the groups least likely to get vaccinated there's a long history of earned mistrust of the medical system there and you know getting vaccinated was very likely um, to reduce the likelihood of the worst outcomes of you know if you do get infected you were less likely to end up in the hospital and so on less likely to get long covid and yet there was a large demographic of people who because of such a long history of mistreatment among other factors but that was a major one um were not getting that care and it's just it's a tragedy all around we need support for people with long COVID, both economically and socially. Families have lost income earners. Children have lost parents. So many lives have been and still are being drastically changed by this ongoing pandemic mass disabling event. Conclusion, we put forward these points of unity to announce our political line, to raise up our struggle, and to help others who are battling inside other organizations to compel action to end the global suffering and mass death and disability which COVID is continuing to inflict. We welcome all comments, questions, and criticisms about these points. And again, if you're interested in this, we will put a link in the description to how you can get in contact with the organizers of this. I think that this was very well written. I like this a lot, very well done, and uh, I will continue to support. All right, so that's the end of our planned content for today. Let's get the patrons up on the screen. want to thank everybody uh, who has contributed this month. More patrons than ever. Thank you all. Um, white names are people who have been patrons for less than a year. Yellow names, less than two years. And green names, longer than two years. Uh, be coming up on our first blue name soon, but not quite yet. But anyway... Thank you to the patrons. Patreon.com slash socialism for all. If you want to kick in some money, it doesn't have to be recurring. Patreon will bill you when you sign up. If you just want to kick in, you know, 5, 10, 20 bucks, whatever. On a one-time basis, you can sign up and then cancel. Of course, becoming a sustaining patron helps me kind of plan this thing from month to month. So either way is helpful. I do really appreciate it. It takes a lot of time to do this channel, and that's time I can't spend you know, doing wage work and other things to pay my bills and do have bills. So um, just greatly appreciate the support. Everything's encouraging, again, also materially helpful. So big thanks to the patrons there. Could we do this channel without you? Yes. Would it be the same? No. I <laughs> wouldn't be able to spend nearly as much time. And again, so many great contacts send in articles, reading ideas, uh, points of clarification. I love it. I love that we're all helping each other to learn here, including me. Uh, I definitely want that and appreciate that. So I really thank everybody for those conscientious contributions. Really means a lot. So appreciate that. And again, thanks to the people who show up in the chats for these streams regularly. Could we do this without you? Yes. Wouldn't be the same. Wouldn't be as good. So with all of that said, let us. We just had another technical glitch, which just got fixed. Cursed stream today. Um, lots and lots of glitches. Uh, don't know why. Anyway, let us finish out today's chat and then we will finish out this stream. I heard that Che called the Cuban Revolution a bourgeois democratic revolution from one of my comrades. Um, haven't heard that, but it's possible. I haven't read that much um, from Che, so um, 
This is good. Our hyper-individualist society has ruined our social skills, mine included. Yeah, that organi organizing advice is very good, I think. Um, are you all not seeing any image on the screen? I don't know what is happening today. Anyway, I don't know what's happening. I'll try to fix this before the next stream, but... Would I mind posting a link to the document in the chat right now? Um, I can't yet. I got to talk to the person who gave it to me. I think it was more private. So, yeah. This is good. Organizing on common goals is good. Actually serious work, like what grifters would like ignoring. They want the benefits of class change only for the small reactionary few to get the gains from capitalism. Yeah, I mean, it's more of a petty bourgeois outlook. All right, good night, Maria. How do you say good night in Greek? I'll say that from now on. She's gone. Anyway, as one of my bunk mates near me, if you talk to the workers and organize on our shared suffering and shared goals of liberation, it's far more effective and radical than just spending all day tweeting and grifting. Uh-oh, that's going to cause some controversy. Uh, what kind of socialism do you support? As we say on the channel, I'm studying Marxism specifically, anti-revisionist Marxism-Leninism. The whole YouTube channel is basically oriented around that. I need to start lurking less. Thanks for stream number 100. What you do is definitely appreciated. This was the point where I realized that the program is crashing. Weird, it says you're gone, but I can hear you. Yeah, I don't know what is going on today. Somebody says it's a bad day for Twitch. Other streams also weren't displaying or playing sound when I checked. Really weird. All right, there's some other discussion of Che and the possible bourgeois democratic revolution statement. I don't know, but in the meantime, this was a lovely stream. I really think I just need longer pauses between streams. Uh, clearly, you know, we came back with a lot to talk about. It gave me enough time to get a lot of stuff up on the channel. Also not burn out. Like I said, doing a stream every week, it's like it just takes over like four days of my life every week. And um, I just can't really sustain that. So I'm glad, really glad, uh, that we made it to Livestream 100. Uh, I think this has just been a really interesting, excellent experience. Most people say that they have benefited a lot from it. Um, you know, learned how to run a live show. You can definitely say we did, even if we never do another one again, which I do plan to do. Uh, we did, you know, we did a hundred of them, so that's not nothing for sure. I definitely got better at this over time. You know, I definitely think I'm better at running these streams now than I was at the beginning. Um, I had been theorizing about you know possible new directions that the channel is going to take i really think in the end what's most likely is it's going to come down to less live stream content more offline content um i have so many readings i, I just have a pile of readings i really want to focus on that um we will definitely still check in with the live streams I, i'll try every two weeks and we'll, we'll see how that goes maybe every three you know in months that have five weeks in them or five wednesdays in them or whatever but um, we'll get the balance right. The balance is definitely not every week, I can tell you that. So, yeah, um, I guess that's it, unless anybody else has any other last-minute things. 
There's going to be three Lennon audiobooks up on the channel, two of them about religion. I know, again, most people get the religion thing mostly correct. Some people have a real issue with it, and so I'm sure these readings are going to stir up some controversy, but, you know, we'll just take it as it comes. Um, thanks again, everybody, for showing up, and we will see you in the next video, in the comments, wherever we see you.